0: Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and AL Levy.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, and thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B R O W N E M O N U M E N T S and A R Levy. And that's at A R Levy U R M Audio. That's E Y A L L E V I U R M A U D I O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it.
2: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Patrick Sheridan, who plays guitar for Fit for an Autopsy. Patrick Sheridan, welcome to the Riff Hard
0: Podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Hello, Patrick. Hello. Hello. I love you, John Brown. I love you too, Pat. Good. 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 Sorry, I
1: never called you back.
0: It's okay. You've been doing that to me for the past 10 years. So it's, it's <laughs>
1: cheers, mate.
0: <laughs>
2: cheers, mate. What is it about musicians and being bad at
0: that? I think basically what it comes down to is the idea of overwhelming responsibilities in our head that seem underwhelming to other people. So you get yourself all mixed up in all these priorities that you're supposed to keep every day. And then you just find all the most important things falling off for stuff that to most people seem trivial, but to us, it's like a mind bender. You know what I mean? So there's things that we do every day to keep ourselves either A, in the creative process or B, in the work process that are so weird that it's almost impossible not to fall apart at the seams, at least for me anyway. I, I end up getting manic over things that don't matter, and then everything else just falls apart.
2: I find that a lot of stuff that are kind of like normal, like you wake up, you have a routine, you go to a workplace, you have a routine at the workplace, you come back at a certain time, you have a routine, like all that kind of stuff, and like you're a responsible human. All that stuff, like uh, I'm not wired that way. Everything involving responsibility and schedule and anything like that is—I have to beat it into myself.
0: Oh my god, the, the idea of being on time, being on time for anything, is that doesn't even exist in my world. Like that's <laughs> the most, like that's the most responsible thing that we do as human beings, right? It's like be on time. You know, you have an appointment, be there when the appointment or ten. What about stage though? Different. <laughs> how, how is it different? It's different because I choose to do that I don't like being told what to do I have a big issue
2: Yeah, but you're being told what to do when no, you no. Know,
0: Bus call? None. Nope, different Bus call means that I can do the thing that I want to do tomorrow Right? Here's the difference When you go to college I pay somebody a bunch of money To tell me what time I have to wake up in the morning But when I play music If I don't show up on time I'm sacrificing the thing that I want You know what I mean? It's why I can't work for other people in the tattoo industry because I don't want to be on time if I don't have to. Like if I have an appointment at one o'clock, I get there a quarter to one. If I have an appointment at two o'clock, I get there a quarter after one, regardless if the place opens at one or not. And to be clear, my shop opens at one o'clock. I I rarely get there at one. You know what I mean? It's just
2: individualist to the death.
0: 100%.
2: Yeah. I kind of think you have to be.
0: Well, I mean, if you're not, you're you're sacrificing yourself for nothing, you know? Like, really think about the, the lifestyle. This is going to be one of those conversations that could take the whole podcast, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's okay. the lifestyle, like, John, how often do you guys tour when there's no COVID? Like, maybe two to four times a year. Okay. We tour, like, six to eight tours a year, and that is the ultimate sacrifice of your body, of your family, of normal, you know, wake up and have a little brekkie at your own house. Like that's not real. You know And I mean? We don't, we don't get that. So you're sacrificing all of these major things that people take for granted every day in order to get up and play music and do the thing that, you know, you love to do live the dream or whatever anybody wants to say. But I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that the dream is partially a nightmare because you're beating the (laughs) hell out of yourself, you know? So like, I love it and I wouldn't change it, but the sacrifice of conforming to the schedules that are created in order to do that are very different to going home and being told, like, you have to have a wife and two kids and a picket fence and you have to, you know, you have to have two cars or you're not a normal average everyday Joe, you know what I mean? Like, I don't care about that. Like, I'm going to do what I want to do until it's time to do what I want to do. And then I'm going to do it the way I have to, so I can continue doing what I want to do. You know what I mean? Yes. It's a weird thing. It's definitely weird. Do you think partially
2: it also has to do with the fact that touring takes up so much energy? And, you know, if you're not on time on tour, bad stuff happens. Like you don't (laughs) you don't get to play your full set or you get left in another city. Like Bad stuff happens if you're late to an appointment. In the real world, it what well, depends on the appointment, right? If it's a job interview, you might not get hired. Yeah. But if you're late to an airplane right. flight, you're going to get left behind. But that's your every day on tour. If you don't make it on time to sound check, you're going to get fucking reamed. If you don't make it to bus call, it might leave without you. So you have this clock in your head that has the idea of consequences that entire time. So do you think that by the time you get home, you don't want to think about that sort of thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, for sure, especially being, you know, musicians and artists and, you know, people who live that independent lifestyle are considered like, man, I hate the word rebel because it's like, oh, you're so, you know, look out, here comes the rebel guy. But I mean, you know, you're, you go against a lot of things, you know, like historically.
2: It is like an alternate lifestyle. 100%
0: it's it's certainly not conformist that's for sure but then you find out in order to be successful you have to kind of chomp at the bit a little bit and do what you're told it's a give and take man so I guess maybe by the time I get home because of my personality like like you said I never thought of it this way but you know I'm over being told what to do and then I'm just gonna you know sleep till four o'clock every day and stay up till 5 a.m. and you know play guitar and not care and luckily my my wife is very understanding to my uh, my mental disabilities, I guess we could say, because I do have a very hard time functioning through all those things. You know, um, yeah. I could never work a nine to five, especially at this point in my life. You know. Uh, me neither. 45 years old, I could never, if somebody's like, you're going to go work in an office, I'd be like, that office better be filled with like, like speakers and party time and guitars and like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not happening. Like I just, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm past that point. I'm functionally incapable of dealing with that kind of lifestyle. I don't know how people do it.
1: I think there's um, the conformist thing that we're so rebelling against. I think the reason why it's so different on tour is because you're still the boss, ultimately. You know, the person that you're telling, you know, say, make sure I'm in the bus at this time. You're actually paying that person. So it's a different (laughs) perception.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm going to pay you to yell at me for 30 days.
2: (laughs) Well, what if you're an opener, though?
0: Ooh, let's talk about that. This is a good segue.
2: Yeah, because <laughs> if you're an opener, uh, you're not paying the headliner's tour manager yeah, to dream you... you for having a bagel.
1: Yeah. actually.
0: <laughs> 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 oh man, have such a good story. But go ahead, go ahead, go. Ahead, go
1: ahead. On the avocado tours, then all four bands paid for the tour manager. Yes, it was always arranged that way. So it wasn't the headliner's tour manager. It was obviously it was organized by the headliners but it was shared so it was kind of like the openers were also paying to listen to the tour manager that was actually in the best interest of the headliner (laughs)
2: <laughs> that sounds like a yeah.
1: semi buy on kind of situation.
0: It's some like BDSM stuff. Like you're paying... <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, I tour managed fit for an autopsy.
1: Ah. So you're yeah, in you are in at them for the
0: bagels? I'm in charge. I don't yell at anybody for bagels. I yell at people for partying after one o'clock in the morning. But other than that, like we try to keep it pretty chill, but we do follow a pretty strict schedule because this is a perfect segue into something really important. It's something that I, I feel like we. Don't talk about enough. As an opening band, you're subjected not only to the tour manager, but to every other working part in the entire tour. Because the person at the venue that goes to get the sparkling water for the band and and like you know, the runner and all that, they have more say than anybody in an opening band, in my opinion. When you're an opening band, especially if it's a big tour, you just shut up and play music. And the reason I say that is because We would shut up and play music when we are the opening band, you just have to, if you're the opening band on a tour, there's a reason why. And that means that tour can do something for you. So yeah, maybe you're in, in theory paying to be there because you're making minimal money and you're you're not like, you know, hustling the the corners of the tour, you know. You're the you're the the warm-up band, you're there to get people in the door, you're there to do a job and then get out of the way and shut up and smile even though it sucks and you're doing all the crappy things. You have to present yourself in a professional manner. So, like what you're talking about as the opening band, I think a big problem especially in the industry that we're lumped into as far as like, you know, deathcore industry is a lot of those bands don't get taken seriously because they don't know how to do that.
2: They don't know how to assume that role in the hierarchy.
0: They don't know how to be professional and deal with the lumping that comes along with being the opening band cuz don't get it bent like Fiffer and Autopsy still a baby band. You know, we're still we're doing very well and things are moving forward for us but we're we're not way up here we're somewhere in the lower middle you know what i mean and we're very aware of that
2: which is still awesome
0: sure it's it's amazing that we've moved from the way down the bottom hundred dollar a night band up to a band that can actually make a living doing it but then you got bands above us that are crushing the you know everything but the reason a lot of bands in our world don't get taken seriously is because people don't know when to not say things And for me, that's the hardest part of my job, because as John (laughs) will tell you, I am very opinionated and not afraid of anyone or anything or saying what I want. And because of that, it, it gets me in trouble. So I've learned over the course of my career that sometimes I just have to shut up for
2: the greater good,
0: for the greater good of my band and for the greater good of the genre, shutting up and being professional means that the next band that does similar things that we do is going to get taken. Hey, fit for an autopsy. They shut up and do the job and they're professional. So let's see if this band will be professional. And then some dummy says something about somebody online or runs their mouth and it's like, nope, never mind. Like door gets slammed on all of us, you know. And I think that's a big part of the industry. That's a problem is there is a sacrifice and there is a point where you have to say, okay, like, Yes, I want to live this non-conformist lifestyle where I do what I want, but there is a prize and a goal at the end of this. So let me work towards that and not only keep myself in in mind when I do it, but also keep the whole genre and the world that I come from in mind. Because if I act responsibly, the next band coming up is going to act responsibly and we're going to teach each other through action. You know, one important thing with me and every tour we've ever been on it's very rare that bands don't come back to our management or booking agent and say hey you know fit for an autopsy was professional they did what they were supposed to do there's very minimal bullshit like we've been on tours with big big bands and these two bands are fighting in the back room over bullshit and we're just walk out and go mind our own business and get a cup of coffee and like not get involved and that's the kind of stuff that pushes a band forward, pushes the genre forward, and, and allows more bands from our world to get opportunity. So I think that's important. And I've always wanted to say that publicly, and I never really get the opportunity.
1: <laughs> there's one thing to remember for the listeners is that there's a big difference between getting on with it and just knuckling down and getting the job done. But then there's this gray area where certain bands like to try and walk all over the opening bands too. And I think that being outspoken in the, those situations isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I agree.
2: There's still, you got to weigh out what the bigger picture is. It's very true. Um, war, war versus the battle.
0: Well, it's risk versus reward in every situation. You know what I mean? Like, think about think about this. Like, you're out with a band that maybe you like or you don't like, but you're there to do a job. So you know what you're getting yourself into. Everybody has heard stories. Everybody's heard things, you know, even about me, that you're coming on tour of fifth or for so You're going to know that we do things a certain way. And that's just the way it is. So you get there and then all of a sudden you're a doormat. That is very <laughs> hard to deal with.
2: And I've- I had a hard time with it, man. Oh, I know. Yeah.
0: I, 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 I'm sure. And I got I got kicked off the tour in, in the beginning of our career because I refused- to eat shit from a couple of guys in a band and you know we lasted three or four weeks on the tour and then it came down to a decision and they were like if you don't like it you can go home and I was like bye and I just went home you know I was like sorry I'm out I'm going home and we left because we got treated so poorly for so long I don't want to be either one of those bands I don't want to be the band that leaves and gets kicked off a tour and I don't want to be the band that treats people bad you know so There's a happy medium in there. And and you just got to figure out where you sit on those gray areas, like John was saying, you know.
2: It's tough because by standing up to this situation, are you fucking yourself up down the line? Right. And you you never know, right? So you got kicked off that tour, but obviously it didn't fuck your career up because here you are. But there are other people who get kicked off the tour and never (laughs) tour again.
0: Well, I think that that has to do a lot with people acting like children when it comes down to business, like, you're not going to get along with everybody. It's okay that people don't want to be your friend. It's also okay that people don't like your band. It's okay that you go on tour with somebody that doesn't fully endorse what you do. Like, that's not what it's about. And I see a lot of people struggling internally with bands over things that just don't matter. You know what I mean? Don't, don't put yourself in a situation where you're second guessing the value of what you're making or what you're creating because somebody didn't, You know, somebody wouldn't let you have an extra sandwich in the green room or you couldn't (laughs) use the showers that night. Like, yeah, if they're motherfucking you up and down and treating you like shit the whole entire tour, like, yeah, stand, stand up for yourself. Don't let them walk on you. And it's funny, like, at the end of that tour that we got kicked off of, the tour manager of that tour caught wind that we had a headliner coming up. And he called me and said, hey, man, I really respect how much you stood up for your guys And, and the things that you were willing to do and how you wouldn't sacrifice certain things. So I was curious if you guys need a tour manager and, you know, I kind of laughed because he was like, probably like one of the worst dudes on the tour to us because he was, he was put in a situation by the headliner, you know, he was just doing his job, doing his job. Yeah. He, he got enjoyment out of it and I could see it, you know, and uh, <laughs> son of a bitch, but you know, he also told me he respected me and my, my team for doing what we did and that he wanted to work for us because he saw how I wouldn't take shit. And I, I thanked him and told him that, you know, we number one, we, at that point we couldn't afford a tour manager, but number two, I wasn't willing to work with somebody you know, who would openly shit on human beings? So we didn't work together, but it was still flattering to have a guy that I thought hated me come back and say, hey, I respect you. You know what I mean? So sometimes you got to know that Kenny Rogers song, you know, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. That, that situation was, <laughs> that was a hold them situation for sure.
2: There was this one tour, a uh, European tour, four band package where we opened. There were things that were agreed to before the tour, like how long it would be after Doors until the tour package started, Mm -hmm. which totally went out the window Oh day one. You know, it was like, in the contract was like, you won't go on until an hour after Doors. When in reality, it started to be five minutes. That was one of those (laughs) situations where it's like, all right, I'm not going to fight this. We're going to let it go. However, it came to a head. the The vocalist in the headlining band is a known megalomaniacal man. I fuckhead.
0: wonder if it's the same. I wonder if it's the same band.
2: <laughs> I'll uh, I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was this one night in Austria, in Vienna, and the club was weird in that you set up, you do your sound check, all that shit, and then everything gets stored under the stage. Okay. So it's inaccessible. It's inaccessible once the doors open, right? Okay. So sound checks happen. Everybody's uh, stuff goes under the stage in the order, in the right order. And the band after us, their guitar player, put his guitars under the stage. So we played our show, our show, we got off on time and he couldn't find his guitar anywhere. Like he put it under the stage and he couldn't find it. And, uh, their show got delayed by like 25 minutes. When they finally located it, and uh, it was a whole fucking hassle because it was under the stage, and the doors were open, and there was a crowd in the room, and because of that, they didn't cut their set short for whatever reason, so Headliner went on late and was not happy, so Singer was already pissed about that, thought it was our fault for some weird reason, Had nothing to do with it, then... That was a night where none of the rider stuff was fulfilled. So we had no food whatsoever, which we didn't fight about either. What I did was uh, I went down the street, bought some pizzas from my band and crew people, and uh, yeah. we ate it backstage. Sure. Now, it was a shared backstage. So we were in our corner, we ate our pizza, and it, that was that, right? ate our pizza and uh, eventually got on the bus and left that night. Well, anyways, at like five in the morning, I got an email from my manager uh, saying that I need to apologize to the singer. Uh, And he forwarded me an email that it said that, AL uh, instructed his band to, uh, to start the show late on purpose, delay everybody. Then they ate all of our food, like ravenous dogs. Like he actually said ravenous dogs. Yeah. So we got accused of delaying the show of eating their food and there, and he just went on and on and on in this email. And it was like all this stuff that just didn't happen <laughs> of course of our course. management did some promotion for that band which was a big client of theirs so they're like you need to apologize apologize You're fucking crazy. <laughs> i'm not fucking apologize <laughs> like i couldn't i couldn't do it yeah I, could, I just couldn't like it just that was a that was a step too far like it
0: the breaking point
2: there's Uh, No fucking way in hell I was going to apologize to that motherfucker (laughs) for nothing.
0: (laughs) No. You talk about pizza and backstage stuff with my band, and they're going to tell you about the time that our tour and another tour linked up. And there was a $500 budget for each tour for food and catering and you know all the daily bullshit so you get your buyout and you can go buy like you know eight dollars worth of whatever shit food you can afford to stuff in your face or whatever so the headlining band on this one tour that was playing over the band on our tour they like you know we like wove in where like we were the first band or second band on the other package but then we were going on third and we just for like four days these two packages came together and uh they were basically stealing our buyouts every night, like stealing our money and just using it for themselves. So
2: were you just not getting your buyouts?
0: We we're oh, there's no buyout for you guys. And I'm like, what do you mean there's no buyout? Like it says in our contracts. So we got to the point where we were <laughs> pissed. Now, I'll tell you a little secret about me, man. I'm not I'm not real good at shutting up. It's very difficult for
2: me. <laughs> you know when someone's stealing your money?
0: When someone's just being a jerk or doing dumb shit that I don't like, I can't be quiet. Like, you steal from my guys so they can't eat food? Like, holy shit. Like, that's like that we got to fight, you know what I mean? Like that's like fighting words. He's stealing food. So
2: that's the the step too far.
0: Yeah. You don't, you don't make it harder for people to live. You know, you don't take basic necessities. We're already getting $10 a day for two meals. Like it's like, how much harder can you make it on us? You know? So the dude that put the tour together, I talked to him on the phone and you know, it was all Pat, you know, calm down. I get it. Blah, blah, blah. I'll talk to them. So the next day we get there and now There are four or five bands on our package, and they bought us three hot and ready pizzas, three, $15 worth of pizza to feed like 30 guys and two women, as a matter of fact. It's going to
2: go a long way.
0: Yeah, we're going to cut those slices of pizza in thirds so we can each have a little bite. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) So I just lose it. So I walk up the stairs into the backstage area and they got this like young tour manager guy and I sit down to talk to him and like, I'm so blinded by frustration that I don't even see what's going on around me as I walk through their backstage. So then he's like, this is just the way it is, dude, blah, blah. So I'm like, fuck this. And I walk out and when I open the door, I walk out to like a table with like four bottles of Jack and two bottles of vodka and like... All this fancy food. There's a guy getting tattooed in the corner. Like, it's like gluttony everywhere. Like, piles of food, like, food on the floor. You know, 80% of that food's going in the garbage. And meanwhile, the guys on my tour are, like, starving. So I just, I have to leave. And when I go to leave... The hot and ready pizza stabs me in the side, and I pick it up and throw it across the room at the guy getting tattooed, and the pizza scatters everywhere all over the room, and there's, like, people covered in pizza, (laughs) and I'm like, fuck you, fuck your band, fuck this tour, I'm out of here, fuck all you guys. I throw the other pizza on the floor, and I walk down the stairs, so... I get a phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Pat, you might want to... I'm not fucking apologizing to anyone. The next day, full barbecue spread for everyone on our tour. Had to be $500 worth of food, beer, everything that we should have had from the beginning. And we didn't even want that much. We just wanted what we were promised. But the idea that people in this industry will go so far to make you uncomfortable even though they made a promise is that's that's how you have to choose you got to choose are they are they infringing on your daily, everyday rights as a band person, and and do you have grounds, or are you just bummed because you can't put your fucking guitar on stage until you go on to play? Like, you have to choose <laughs> what's the more important thing. And I've been, I've been involved in both. Oh, you guys don't have room back here, you can't be back here. Okay, cool. There's no room in the green room for you, you can't be back here. All right, cool. You can't use the showers until the whole band showers at the end of the night you got to stay late and do it okay fine we'll do all those things you can't eat all right now we have a problem you know what i mean like that that's where the differences are and i think i think a lot of people don't know how to separate that and it took me a long time to learn my place but i know where my place is when i'm a headliner (laughs) my place is wherever i want it to be and when i'm the opening band my place is where i'm told to be within reason
1: right within reason I've actually got a story that it does go the other way as well. And one of the first, in fact, it was the first European tour we did as as monuments. We were supporting Winds of Plague, Stick to Your Guns, and For Today. And I would say we were completely out of place on that package, but that's irrelevant. (laughs) We played a a show in Norwich and um, we played to six people. Awesome, Because the promoter hadn't done any form of promotion. And the package didn't even get the entire fee that was due of course yeah but the headliner paid the bands in a way that the opening band which was ours got our full fee right second band got their full fee and then whatever was left went to the headliner so that's an example of the good guys the good guys yeah that actually well these guys are only getting paid this much each show we can take the hit for this. You know what I mean?
0: That's important too, right? As a headliner, that's important. Like, hey, don't take a merch cut from these guys. Take a cut from us, but let these guys keep all their money because of whatever. And then we pay the full merch fee or, hey, you know, there's not a lot of money in the, in the uh, buyouts today for these guys because the budget is less because we're playing in Wichita, Kansas today. So let's just just take the whole budget for the entire tour and just buy a big meal for everybody and we can eat together. You know what I mean? Like, those are the kinds of things that you want to do. You know, oh, these guys are... They don't have a lot of money. They don't have strings. We get strings for free. I'm going to give these guys 20 sets of strings to help get them through the tour. Like, we do things like that because no one ever did it for us. And maybe we can teach people, like... Hey, if you pay it forward and do it for the next guy, we can change how touring is. You know what I mean? But there's not a lot of bands that give a shit about that. Like that's that's an, an anomaly. You know what I mean? I, yes,
1: to a degree, but obviously there are good people on tour as well. Yeah, um, that's one thing always to remember.
0: The Trivium guys taught us a lot about being good to people. Yeah, they they really did. Matt Heafy and his whole team, like they support the crap out of us. I think
2: because they got treated like shit a lot Yeah, coming up.
0: I think so too. I think people still yeah. give that band a lot of shit, which seems crazy because they've been, you know, they're like a staple now. You know, they're like, they're here because they should be here. They've been here for a long time. So it's, it's interesting to me.
2: Yeah, it, man, when they first came out and for those first 10 years, 10 years for the first decade of them being a well-known band, They were shat on so much and not just from metal fans, like from people in the industry, they were constantly treated like shit. So I'm sure that they have some sort of an ethos about not being not treating other people the way they were treated because it was it was brutal.
0: It's weird when you see a good band get treated poorly.
2: It's because they were so young when they came out, I think, that people were like, who are these fucking kids? Blah, blah, blah. Matt's got a swoopy haircut. (laughs) Fuck that shit. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, dude, they've been around almost 20. They've been successful for almost 20 years now. That's not it. That's not an accident.
0: Yeah, it doesn't happen by accident. You know, that happens for like a year or two.
2: Okay. I want to talk about that for a second. Since we're talking about misconceptions and things that people don't really understand. There's a perception, mostly from the outside, you find this perception a lot in local scenes, which I think holds a lot of people back, that uh, any band that's successful, there are rich parents involved, or <laughs> industry plant, or it was put together by a record label, or any one of these many bullshit things. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well. Come on tour with Fit for an Autopsy for a month and sit in our van <laughs> and eat peanut butter sandwiches and then talk to me about the, the uh, backing that we have from other people. I mean, all right, look, we're with Nuclear Blast now. That's amazing. They're great when it comes time to record a record. We have a lot of help from them. Um, we have, we're self-managed, so there is no management company involved in what happens with Fit for an Autopsy. It's Will and then me. And, you know, we have some help in the industry because we have some friends, but we do all our management stuff. Up until, I don't know, a few years ago, we were a $250 to $500 a night band. And that's what we lived on. And that's what we did. And now we're doing better and that's great, but there's no industry backing for bands that are doing well. Like I have seen bands like in our world, like let's take a band like Whitechapel. They're a baby band when I met them and they were doing the same thing that every other band does, and then they started doing well, people realized that they could make money and then the wheels started to turn, right? So then they got picked up by the label, they got the right management, they started moving forward and then they started making money and becoming a bigger band. There is no prize that you get before you put in the work you put in the work and then if you can generate money for somebody to go out and buy a new BMW or Bentley or whatever the hell it is that they want to drive, they're going to help. Then they're going to jump in there and they're, you're going to jump in bed with them. And it's all about how you position yourself from that point forward. You know what I mean? So it's hard to say that that doesn't happen because I'm sure here and there it does like, Somebody finds a band super early on, like hey, here and there, yeah. But yeah. the most of it is guys like me and you and John and everybody else who ever played in a band taking the big sacrifice to hope to get the you know minimal career that can come along with being in our corner of the industry.
2: It's funny, a lot of people thought that my dad bought me my career because of his classical music career. It's like- <laughs> Do you have any idea how far removed the classical industry is from metal? Yeah. They are two worlds that don't they like don't even exist in the same galaxy.
0: I would imagine your dad was probably pissed at you for, yes, for, he was. for playing in a <laughs> yeah.
2: metal band. He was like, What are you doing? This is garbage. Yeah, he he wasn't he was not pleased and he had zero contacts or influence whatsoever in this world. I have a theory that Sometimes if you have just the right connections and you happen to come across them at just the right time and they're like your cousin or some shit like that, you might get let in the door. It might happen. There are some people that that happens to. But once you're in the door, no amount of connections or backing are going to keep you there unless you're generating cash for people. No one's doing this for charity.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you're not willing to raise your own personal bar and sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff in order to um, get ahead of what else is going on around you. First of all, if you don't have the songs, it doesn't matter. You know, like if you're not writing the songs, if you're not creating the package, if you're not visually linked to, you know, you got to look the part, be the part, write the songs, do the thing. And if you're not willing to do that, well, if you can't do that, then there's no conversation to even begin with. And then, and and that doesn't mean that it has to be good to me or it has to be good to you. It just, there just needs to be an audience that thinks it's good, that's willing to spend money on that thing, right? Let's get past the perception of what good songwriting is because. I have heard Who some yeah. bullshit in my day, and people fucking love it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I see a, a guy like John writing like incredible music, and then you know maybe not being as big as I think that band deserves to be. And then I see some other band with a guy with weird pants and a face tattoo, and like he's his band is doing the thing because they fit an image, and people dig it. You know what I mean? So there's no. There's no way for me to say what good songwriting is or isn't, but what I can say is if there's not some substance there for people to grab onto, then nobody's going to give you money to do anything. But aside from just that, yeah, of course it's going to help to have a buddy or a cousin in the industry, but even they're going to tell you like, dude, like you can't make us money. We can't give you money. You know, like, yeah, we can get you some shows, maybe put you on a tour but if you're not willing to I mean,
2: introduce you to somebody, yeah.
0: If you're not willing to pound it out, then it, it doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of fantasies that come along with being on the outside of this world. And like, there are a lot of people who come to me and I'm sure John too, dude, how do I get my band on a tour? How do I, oh, how yeah. do I do? And, and, You know here it is here's the truth and i think both of you guys will agree with me on this you're a local band you want to go on tour you want to do something good first of all stop writing bullshit go watch good (laughs) bands live and write good songs because i'll hear a good riff watching a local band and then it'll just go off into something that i'm just like all right i'm lost now I'm, i'm off this but there's you know a lot of these bands have some things that could be good so go focus your songwriting You know, take some courses online, learn some different things about songwriting, write some good songs, and then play every local show that you can play for no money. Be cool. Don't walk around like you're hot shit. Let the local band or the touring bands see you get on stage, play, get off stage. Don't let your drummer break his fucking cymbals down on stage. Don't break your pedal board down on stage. You take your shit, you get it off as fast as you can get on, get off, play a good set, perform the right way and do that as many times as you can impress your local promoters. Then they'll put you on bigger shows, impress the bands that are touring, get to the point where those bands are like, oh, I hope this local band plays, you know what I mean? Like do all of those things. And (laughs) if you can do that, you start to make a name for yourself in the industry and people pay attention. And when they pay attention, then you can start to move forward. Don't ever try to make money. Don't think that, you know, oh, well, I don't want to have to sell tickets. Well, go sell the freaking tickets and play the show with the big band and shut up. Like, you're not that cool. I'm not that cool. Like, you think that I never did that? I did it. We all did it. It's what you do. And and just get over it. And then maybe your son won't walk in the room during your podcast and uh, you can go on tour and make a bunch of money. (laughs) So out
2: of curiosity, How long were you in local bands for?
0: Oh my God. Right up until Fit for an Autopsy. I mean, Fit for an Autopsy was a local band for like a pretty long time, you know? Like Fit started in 2006, 2007. And we had like a totally different lineup and we broke up and got back together. And then we got a notable singer and then he left. And there's a crazy building stage for Fit from like 2008 to like 2010, now, we put out our first record in 2011, so you could say we were a quasi-local band in between, say, 2006 or 7 to, like, 2010 when we started touring.
2: And I'm sure that's not your first local band.
0: Oh, God, no. I mean, I'm 45 years old, actually, today. 45 years old today. Oh. That's Happy right. Happy birthday, birthday. Day to <laughs> you. Stop it. So, uh, yeah, I was in a bunch of bands before. I was even in some, like, smaller like touring local style bands that would do regional stuff and then yeah it's been a long road that's for sure
2: so two things come to mind one a lot of people once they pass 30 if it hasn't happened yet they think it's over
0: that's bullshit exactly
2: that's what i'm saying it's your proof that it's bullshit but was there ever a point where you were like Hmm. Cause dude, the 30 line is when people start quitting touring bands. That's like that's like when people are like, hmm, maybe I need to get serious about normal life. Did you no ever have way. that?
0: So you were... <laughs> Yeah, I've I've had it. I have it every single time I'm on the tour. Ride or die. Yeah, ride and die. Let's do that. Ride and die. If I if I die on a tour bus somewhere, you know, my wife will know that I fulfilled my dream. You know what I mean? Like, okay, so Yeah, people say to me, when are you gonna give up that kid stuff? And it's like, well, I'm sorry that you hate your life, but my (laughs) life is rad, you know what I mean? Like, my biggest issue is that I'm not good at doing what people tell me. That's my biggest issue probably. Like my wife will tell you that I'm not good at, hey man, this would be a great idea. And if I don't wanna do it, it's like, nope, not interested. (laughs) And that, that has become much lesser. You know, but I've seen a lot of a lot of punk rock guys in my day, not so punk rock anymore you know what I mean and I don't think I don't think your convictions and your um and your overall mindset as a human being change as you get older unless you're willing to let them change
2: by change do you mean devolve
0: <laughs> devolve is a great is a great way to describe people who quit touring some because it's like I have this dream, right. Now, it doesn't mean your dream can't change. Like maybe you're a touring guy that realizes, man, I really want to be an engineer or I want to have a podcast or I want to do a thing or I want to have a different career. That's not giving up on your dreams. That's realizing that at that point in time, that dream isn't the same prize for you that you thought it once was, and you move on to different things. Correct. But it it doesn't mean that you change your convictions or your mindset. Fuck authority. Fuck the cops. Fuck this. Fuck that. Blah, blah, blah. Well, the police have a great pension plan, so I'm going to be a cop (laughs) now. No. Get the fuck out of here. You you hate cops. You hate cops. You don't do that, you know? So, you know, maybe that's a bad example because I don't want to offend anyone, but I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that- what is what is your sacrifice? Are you changing everything about your life because you really want to? Because if you want to, if you've had enough and you're like, fuck this, I'm done, we're not getting anywhere, then fine. Go for it. Find your next chapter. But if you're quitting because it's, oh, it's too hard. It's taking too long. Like, well, you know, a, a billionaire is not a billionaire because they're willing to quit. You know what I mean? A person doesn't get you know you're not you're not in the top 10 on the music charts because you were willing to quit you're you're willing to work and sacrifice and while at 45 it's harder than it was when i was 25 still not i haven't reached my goal yet so when i reach my goal then i'll sit back and if people have an issue with that well that's their issue but when i'm done i'm done And I think that that's a big problem in this industry. Everybody wants everything so quickly, they don't realize that it's there. You just got to figure out how to get to it, and that doesn't happen overnight. But sacrificing what I believe in and the things that I want in my life before I'm ready is is not that's not I don't fathom that in any way. Not an option. Fuck no. No way.
1: It's quite interesting that you went on about how, you know, people can change their path. I think that's really important to understand because some people maybe just don't think big enough in what they can achieve with within their dream.
2: Sure.
0: One hundred percent.
2: I realized at one point that uh, I didn't want the band thing the way I did when I was younger. I just sure if I was being honest to myself, I didn't want it the way I used to. I wanted other things, but you made me think of something. Elon Musk's two-time ex-wife, because he he married the same chick twice, Twice, divorced her twice. I,
0: I love that story. Really? Yeah. Yeah.
2: She said that she gets asked all the time by people, how do you become a billionaire? How do you do what he does? Like, give me the secret. And she's like, you're never going to figure it out because he, uh, first of all, she said that she never met anybody who ever could outwork him. <laughs> like he outworked every single person that he's, or she had ever met. And he was willing to have it all crash and burn multiple times. Uh, he was willing to be poor, willing to lose everything at any moment for the things he was doing. And Those two qualities are super rare. Yeah. Most people are not willing to watch everything burn down. And then most people also don't have insane work ethic.
0: Well, in order to be in a band in this day and age, there's so many people trying to do it. And people say, oh, the music industry, there's not as many bands. I'm like, I don't know what side of the music industry you're on. But from my angle, there's a lot of people that want the prize. It's all about what you're willing to do. Can you wear the same underwear for five days in a row? You know what I mean? Can you (laughs) do that? Can you wear the same pair of underwear for five days? Can you go a month living on peanut butter sandwiches? Can you... Not see your wife and your child for a se- all right so the the this is a great example. So we did this tour with Is murder. um we toured with them quite often. they're also another great band to be on tour with if you know how to do the thing they they're very good to you if you if you're performing properly. We did it was Japan, Australia, and then we flew to Europe and did Europe with Sepultura. I flew from Atlanta to l a did nam from la to japan and then did bullet trains around japan every day woke up at five in the morning every day went to the venue loaded in played a show left back at the hotel by 1am took a quick shower went to bed slept for a few hours and it's funny it was three years ago today i had my birthday in japan so this is like really relevant right now and then we finished that tour we flew from tokyo to, I believe, Singapore and Singapore to Brisbane. And then every day we flew from show to show, which was go to bed at 5 a.m. Or, I'm sorry, go to bed at 2 a.m., wake up at 5 a.m., get on a plane, fly, unload, play a show, pack it back up, get back in the hotel, sleep for three hours, get on a plane, and do that for eight days. And then we flew from uh, Brisbane to Sydney, Sydney to Dubai, not Dubai, to... Uh, Korea, I think. I don't know, one somewhere in that region, and then to London, Heathrow, and then Dusseldorf to do a thirty-two day tour with Sepultura. And Seventy-five days of straight touring with something like fifteen flights back to back. I'm pretty sure I slept for forty-five minutes for seventy-two days. I don't. I don't remember <laughs> sleeping, right? So. When you say, oh, man, it must be so cool to do that. No, it's fucking not. It's awful. It's self-torture. Yeah. You literally have no idea what's going on. You're on autopilot. You're playing shows, and you're convinced in your head you're playing terribly, and then you watch the video, and you're like, well, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. You know what I mean? Like, You're, you're sacrificing your body and your, your health in order to get this dream, and when you are in it, if you really want it, you don't even skip a beat. Like, my wife is in the room right now. I Thank you, babe. I slept for, I think, 60 hours. I came home. I went to bed. I woke up. I went to the bathroom. I had a bite to eat. I went to bed. I woke up. Like, she thought I was going to die. Like, I literally (laughs) slept for like four days straight. You know what I mean? And I wouldn't change it for the world. It's the craziest experience and, like, the challenges of it and being able to function through that. Like, that's not... Normal people can't do that. No. Normal people aren't willing to do that.
2: nor do they want to.
0: Right. So like, you know drooling on yourself at 40 years old because you haven't slept for you know nine days and you're you're surviving on coffee and like like salted meats in Europe, like it's not it's not what everybody believes it is. you know even the big the big guys have to sacrifice like that too. You know, it's not easy. It it doesn't matter how big you
2: are. Travel still takes a toll. Mm. Even if you're flying first class. Even if you're flying first class, it still takes a toll.
0: You could be flying in your own private jet and you're still going to get beat to hell. You know what I mean? It's hard. So I I know I'm kind of rambling a little bit because I'm like waxing poetic with my memories in my own brain. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, look at how wonderful this was. But man, it was it was some of the most amazing experiences. And I saw some of the most amazing things all packed into like 72 days. But at the same time, like I took 14 years off my life. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Do you remember when we saw each other at that? Was it? um
1: Yeah. It was when you guys were in Denmark, right?
0: No, 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 not that tour. That was the, when you came out to see us, we were playing together in the same, I was talking about that first festival that we played with full force, with full force festival. Yo, yo, i barely remember talking to you (laughs) i was gone was that was that was that the sepultura tour no no that we were out on a festival run and we were doing some headliner dates and we were doing some festivals and with full force festival we played main stage a few bands before slayer and it was incredible it was one of my first festival experiences but you guys played and i remember your set was incredible and I was like, all right, I Thank get you. this band. Like, yeah, dude, your band is awesome. You, you deserve more more uh, accolades for what you guys do because you guys are great. You really are. And um, so we played that fest. That was the first time I met Nurgle, and I barely okay. remember anything we said to each other. It was <laughs> like I was gone, dude, gone. And you spend so many times of your life where people are like, do you remember? And I'm like, pfft. No, I don't remember any of that. I don't remember any of it. You know what I mean? So
2: I I can relate.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Mind eraser.
2: Out of curiosity, all that said, I think that part of what's important here is that just acknowledging that there's no real fantasy life out there when it comes to something that takes work to build. No matter if it's your dream or not, it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to be very, very challenging, but pointing those things out is very different than complaining about it. I think it's important to be honest about the reality of what it takes to make something happen. At the same time, though, uh, that said, because touring is a motherfucker, what is the (laughs) prize for you?
0: People. Okay. This is a really cool thing for me. This is something that means everything. So I'm sure we're going to get into, like, the the writing aspect and stuff with Fit for an Autopsy. For Fit for an Autopsy, my job is to tour. That's my job. So when I get on stage... And I'm screaming into the crowd because I'm, when I'm on stage, I go for it. You know, I put everything yep. I can in and I'm screaming into the crowd and there, there's like a handful of kids looking me right in my face, screaming right back. And they, they have that feeling and that connection, man, that's it. You know, whether I make a hundred bucks, 500 bucks or $5 million, like that will never change for me because there was a point in time when music saves my entire life. Like I was if I didn't have music and like a handful of other things in my life, like I I would be dead or in jail. Like for sure. I've had a crazy life. I've done a lot of wild stuff and like music pulled me away from a lot of things, music and tattooing really, really saved me. And, um, that connection that did
2: it give you a a focus to your wildness?
0: Yeah. It took to your savagery basically. Well, Like think of it this way when you grow up and you're told your whole life that, you're not going to do any of the things that you want to do and you're you're essentially a piece of shit and you should just go get a job in a warehouse somewhere and that's the rest of your life but you don't want to be that person you don't want to be your father you don't want to be the people that you see miserable every day like you're just convinced that your life is just going to be shit you know i was convinced for a long time my life was going to be shit and Once I fell into these two industries, I realized, like, there's something out there for me. And the reason that I have it is because of the people that care about what I do and care about what we do, care about what John does, what you do, what we all do. It's why we have careers. And there's something so special about that. There's something that you can't fake that. Like, when I'm at the merch table and I'm selling our merch because I don't care about being out there and getting, you know, asked to sign a million things and hang out and talk and punished with all these questions, like... Those are the people that make it possible for me to do this. So anybody that's watching, that's a fan of the band, like you're the reason that I do this. Like the tours and the people and the, the handshakes and the hugs and the, your music helps me through so many things. And like now we have a platform where we can do cool stuff and like donate money and and like help people that need help. And I needed help when I was a kid and yeah. music helped me. So now I want to help other people who need help. You know, the the young kid that has a bad home life or the, the kid that doesn't know where he fits in or where she fits in or where, who, whatever, you know, like what, what their life is, or, you know, somebody who needs something to connect to like the idea of being that connection is incredible for me because that's what, you know, that's why I'm not, you know, what, why, that's why we're here talking now because I have that. And that's really why I love it.
2: I agree with you that you can't fake it um, because you can't fake an audience that cares—you can't buy that, and you can't fake it.
0: No, and you can't fake being a player that cares that they are there. Yeah, I've seen it with my own face. I've been—I've met people that are like, yeah, hi, hey, how's it? Go? Like, no, I'll never do that. I don't care how tired I am. I don't care how shitty I feel. I don't care if I'm sick. I'm gonna get off the bus. I'm gonna go board van or whatever it is we're traveling in. I'm gonna go play that fucking show. I'm gonna puke off the side of the stage, which I did. In in the crowbar in Brisbane, I threw up twice because it was so hot. I'm going to throw up off the side of the stage and continue to play until I can't, until they got to carry me off. And then I'm going to go meet everybody. I'm going to say, hey, how you doing? I'm going to, hey, thank you for coming out. Can you sign my shirt? Yes. Well, it's weird that I'm signing in a mirror shirt, but sure, I'll sign your shirt. No problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, it, it, <laughs> and John, you're laughing because you've done this before. It's so weird. But who the fuck cares? Who cares? I'll sign whatever you want.
1: I think the main thing to to remember about these people is that that them meeting you in that moment for that 10 seconds could literally be a life or death situation for that person. Yeah. And it's, it's really magical. It is.
0: Yeah. Who am I to decide the parameters of something that important to somebody else? I mean, listen, I've also had the opposite end of the spectrum where I've had to be a little shitty to get my point across to people. And, and that's true too. like as a fan, maybe remember that I'm doing this every single day and sometimes life gets in the way maybe something's going on at home or something is happening. So sometimes when you meet an artist and they seem a little disconnected, it's not always because of you or because they don't want to be there. Maybe they're trying to be there, but they have their kid might be sick or something might be going on at home yeah, their or maybe dog they lost died yeah, you lose a relative or a pet. there's a lot of things that come with that, but also, know that I want to meet you. John yeah. wants to meet you. People that care about the people that love their music, they want to meet you. And that's the prize for me. You know, also, I love playing live. I love it. It's so fun. Like (laughs) spitting water into the air, which I'm not going to be able to do for a while because of COVID. And like, you know, (laughs) like just being wild on stage. And like John's seen me play a handful of times. Like he'll tell you, like I scream at the crowd and like throw water at myself and like squirt bottles of water into the crowd. You know, like I feel like the show is so important and sacrificing that little bit of playing in order to put on the show is also important. There's like a little selfishness in it too, you know, but I love it. I I love playing live and I love meeting people. So that's my prize.
2: So one thing I'm curious about, because we've talked about what's hard about this and how cool it is also, why you do it. But I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier. You said you and Will manage the band. In order to have a band that you make a living off of, I'm sure you it's the band plus your tattooing. But in order to have a band that is economically viable, you have to think about certain things that maybe uh, an outsider wouldn't think of. And I I hate to use that cliche that people use, like to think of your band as a business, but it is kind of true. However, 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 when you think of a band as a business, it's, kind of easy to say, but difficult to do because lots of people who are in bands have no idea what running a business even means in the first place. So those are kind of empty words to a lot of musicians. You're going to run it like a business. All right. What the fuck does that even mean? So yeah, like, what do you know about business? So that said, I know that you guys do run it like a business. So can we talk about what that actually means to you?
0: When I say we manage it together, let me be very, very clear. I deal with all of the tour stuff. I deal with all the logistics, all the things that say a manager would handle on that side of things. And will Mm -hmm. generally deals with the business stuff. Will is extremely business minded and very smart, smart. very fucking smart, man. Like he understands it. And, um, he's good at branding. He's good at aligning yourself with certain things. And he's, he's great at writing music. Like he's, he's the full, you know, the total package. Like if I was to marry anybody, it would be Will Putney, you know, he's the total package. (laughs) And also one of my best friends in the world. So like I learn a lot from him even in how to run my tattoo business. So, you know, we split the management responsibilities. He handles a lot of the things in the background and, you know, cause I'm a hothead. Like I said, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck this. We'll fucking burn it all down. And you no, know, we can't do that. We have to do this, you know? And, and that's a lot of our conversations. So yeah, you have to run it like a business and you have to remember that there's a creative bottom line and then there's a financial bottom line and you have to figure out where those two things meet and how they meet together. And what I mean by that is like, you can only do as much as you can, do within the budgets that you're given to do them. So you have to be creative in the way that you put together a record, creative how you use your money for certain things. Do you really need to do this as opposed to doing that? And let's put your money here instead of putting it there. And it's gotten easier since we moved on to a bigger label and our budgets are better. But like when we were on our last label, E1, we didn't get as much for a record setup. We didn't get as much for recording. We didn't get as much for all of those things. So you have to kind of learn how to creatively use those budgets and how to raise money on your own in order to keep that wheel turning. And I think that, you know, the whole creative business solutions like the idea of that is really applies, you know, like, how can I stretch my budget, who we could do one big fancy video, or we can hire one guy to do three videos that fit within our budget. And then maybe not have as great music videos, but then get that sick drum room that we wanted or get this thing that we want to use in order to make you know, the, the tone of the record better or, you know, Will can buy some new mic prees because it's really going to help us. And, you know, what, where does your money go in order to do all that stuff? Not that Will would ever need any equipment, but just saying. like, <laughs> he's just, good on that. <laughs> Yeah, he's good on that. But I'm just using it as an example. Oh, We're going to buy this head, you know, because it sounds incredible and we want to reamp with this head. So we're going to put some money towards that and then we're going to take some money away from this. You know, like that applies to the every day of being in a band. You know okay we got money here what can we do to to either a make it into more money or b make the live show better you know c make the record better you know like what is the most important thing like those kinds of conversations are things that happen between me and will pretty often and it's usually will just calling me and saying hey i want to do this thing and me going yeah i'm a caveman so that sounds perfect (laughs) are we going to be able to tour you know and he goes yes it'll make it easier cool, let's do that. You know what I mean? Like, perfect. That sounds great. So I think the most important thing is figuring out if you can do that or not, right? Do I pay somebody 15%? Is that the smart road? Or do I try to do it myself? Well, for
2: some people, it is the smart road.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because they don't know anything about business. (laughs) And not only do they not know anything about business, but aligning yourself with certain people can help your career right we all know that everybody wants the booking agent with the most power because that dude people owe that guy favors so that means that your band can get a bigger tour because you work with the big fancy you know booking agent guy everybody wants to do that but is it in your budget Can you make he or she or they or them the proper amount of money in order for them to want to work with you? And is it smart for you to sacrifice that money at this point in your career? Are you getting too big for your britches or are your britches too big for you right now? And that's a really important conversation that you need to have with yourself and with your bandmates.
2: It is because one of the biggest mistakes that bands make when going for the big time manager or agent when they're not ready for it is signing on and basically losing all their momentum and wasting all this time and money because they're not big enough for that person to care. Yeah. And so that person's going to deal with all the other artists on their roster that makes the money and you're going to end up lower than last priority basically. (laughs) Yeah. Which doesn't help you. Doesn't help anybody.
0: they take your stapler and put you immediately into the basement you know what i mean like you're you're definitely not getting the uh the attention that you can get And, and this is this is a great example and i know john will be right there with me on this i was working with a pretty big company for a few years and then i felt like i wasn't getting exactly what I wanted, so I went to a smaller company and became a little bit of a bigger fish in a smaller size pond, and there are benefits to that at the right time if you're making those moves at the right time. And, you know, you have to learn when you are either growing out of your pond or if the pond is turning into an ocean and you're not contributing to yourself to keep up with the growth. You know what I mean? Like, I see a lot of people making these mistakes. Like, there is... Certainly, um, a, a place for people to be, you know, in the big, the big wheel, you know, you get with a company or a label or whatever, and they're big and they have lots of bands on that label or lots of bands are endorsed by that or some very popular people work with this company. So now you've aligned yourself with these people. But now you have to do what these people do in order to stay aligned and not keep falling down the ladder there's work and we keep talking about work right so i can use my endorsement with ibanez as a very good example of that we came in there and i was you know talking to tim about doing music videos with the ibanez thing making commercials for the guitars that we're using we made videos out of our own budgets and sent it to ibanez and and we did all these things because we knew that they're not going to give us the same attention as the Steve Vai's and the Paul Gilberts and the and Herman Lee's and the, and the guys that are with this company for years and have longevity. So you have to create your own path. Just because you have James or Jamie T booking agent booking your band and they have some strengths to them, it doesn't mean you benefit from those strengths if you're not willing to put the work in. It all comes down to you, right? Yep. So then you have to figure out, do I wanna do that or do I wanna be a bigger fish in a smaller pond and and be the guy or girl or team that has the ability to say, hey, we're one of your bigger artists, so we deserve a little bit more of this and figure out where you fit. You know what I mean? It's it's a really tricky thing when it comes to the business of a band because it's so simple to get caught up in that, you know, oh man, I'm gonna I'm going to be with this team and they're going to do amazing things for us. And then it's like, we've been with this team for a year and they haven't done anything. And it's like, yeah, just because you're on a team doesn't mean you're instantly the, you know, the, the star pitcher of the team. You got to pitch and prove that you're good at pitching. And then you can, you can be the the guy or the girl, you know, like you, it doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? And yeah. again, that comes, that's the dream, right? Everybody thinks. The fantasy of the music world. Oh, if we get on, you know, this record label, we're going to be huge. And nope. nope. That's not how this works.
1: People have that perception that when you get on a big label, it's like, oh, we're automatically going to be big. And then they don't think about the actual mammoth of work that gets increased to the work they were already doing in order to make it happen.
0: Yeah. 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 I think, I think we put out three pieces of music in a year and a half. Three albums. Right. We did a full length record and then we did a split, and then we did another record right behind it. And that is, people are like, you're crazy. And I'm like, yeah, but we're growing and this is working. And now we have more to tour on and we have all these things to do. We did, I think we did, whenever the depression sessions came out, I can't remember. What records is it? I feel like it was Absolute Hope, Absolute Hell, Depression Sessions, and then uh, The Great Collapse. I think that was the order. And they came out in a very close proximity. It was less than two years. Those three pieces of music all dropped at the same time. So we did a full-length record and we did an original and a cover, the Nine Inch Nails cover and flatlining, and then we released another full-length record all within a year and a half of each other. The work that goes into that and we toured the whole time so you know we have some advantages to having will at home you know writing or whatever but like we didn't stop touring we did some of our most like most important touring in that cycle so imagine that like people telling us like you're doing too much and it's like well that's what you think but i don't think so and it worked you know like it it paid off in a way where like we we grew as a band, you know, other labels became interested in us. They saw, you know, people saw how hard we were hitting the pavement. We got a bigger booking agent. We got more people working with us and then we made steps. And I'm not saying we, we, we in a way where it's like, Hey, look what we did. It's just like, this is what worked for us. And, and the work is there when you're willing to work, you know, it, it pays off. And if the product is good, it pays off. It doesn't matter what label you're on or who you're working with. They're not going to do a thing for you if you're not willing to burn the candle at both ends. They need something to work with. Absolutely.
2: They're not just going to invent something to work with. It's like uh, when you hire, like when a local band hires a publicist thinking that that's going to do something for them. Well, newsflash, a publicist needs a story to push. <laughs> if you don't have a story, what's what do you think is going to happen?
0: Yeah. News at 10, band pays me a thousand dollars to write a story about them. There's your story. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> you know? Exactly.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard.
2: Yeah, the, you got to think about the fact that these people in the industry have their own problems and their own priorities and they're just trying to do a good job at their job. They need something to work with. If you don't give them that, they're going to work with some, the other people who do give them something to work with.
0: Yeah, like look at look at it from, again, from a business perspective. Like if I own a business and I have three people working for me and person A makes four times as much money as person B and person C, person A is gonna always benefit from their hard work. Person B and person C will get treated to the minimum standard that everybody deserves to get treated, but person A is a go-getter. They are willing to work hard and do the things, so they're gonna benefit from that. When it comes time to say, okay, there's extra here, who gets the extra? It's always gonna go to the hardest worker that's benefiting the business because you wanna keep that person in your business so they continue benefiting the business. And that's how business works. You know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, the squeaky wheel is the one that's usually making you the most money. That's the one yeah. that's gonna get the grease. So you wanna, you wanna be the person or band or project that gets the most attention. You gotta be willing to put in the work. And if you're not getting paid a million dollars a show, then you play enough shows that you are making the money for that person or team to pay attention to you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, again, we're back to self-sacrifice, you know, it, <laughs> it's what it always goes back to.
2: It always does. You know, one thing that you mentioned in the pre-interview and you emphasized actually that for your band and any band is the huge need to control debt. And this is something that, oh yeah, this also doesn't get talked about very much. And this is the crusher of so many bands, you know, whether it's the debt from your label advance, rentals, flights. Whatever whatever it is, you need to make sure that it's paid quickly and completely. Can we talk a little bit about how debt control has uh, helped you guys stay active and reasonably comfortable?
0: So here's what happens when you're in a band. You're not making any money forever, right? So a lot of bands don't control their debt from the beginning where they feel like, all right, I'm just going to dump everything into this and I'm going to do it in a way where it's going to cost us some money and then... We're going to sacrifice it and we'll balance it how we have to. And that happens with everybody in the initial growth stage of a band because there's no money coming in. How's their money going to be going out? So you just have to learn how to kind of balance it and use the resources that you have available. So then you go through that first couple of years of struggle and then you start making a little bit of money. So instead of taking that money and putting it back into the band to control the debt, you immediately go out and you're like, yeah, I'm making money. I could have some extra tacos for dinner tonight. And you You waste a little bit of money and then that becomes habit. So the debt pile keeps going and going and going because you want to be able to live this comfortable life instead of realizing, hey, let's get this debt under control and then in a year or two, I'll have more because I won't have to pay out anything. You know what I mean? So you get in this cycle of spending and then not paying off, just paying the minimum and then you end up with a hunk of debt that's too big for you to even control and then you have to sacrifice even more than you would have if you would have been smart about balancing your checkbook so i think that's a big misconception in the industry that like oh once you start making money it's yours it's like no once you start making money you have to reinvest and you reinvest in a way that number one you get rid of your debt and then number two you build things about the band we're making a little more money but we are now Buying more gear for live. We just talked about buying a uh, a new in-ear rig. And anybody who knows anything about that knows we're going to spend ten to $15,000 on an in-ear yes. rig now. But that's money that could be in my pocket. That's money that could be in Tim's pocket or Blue's pocket or Will's pocket or any of our pockets. You know, and I'm sure, could use the extra money. Joe could use the extra money. But like, we are going to put that back in to make our live show better. So when we do get back to playing live shows, we can sound better and people will be more impressed and tell more of their friends of how good we are and have bigger shows. And then that will translate into bigger venues and more money.
2: Back to sacrifice.
0: Right. But people don't think about that. So you really need to control your debt because putting yourself in a hole— is going to ruin the project. And that's a big reason that a lot of these folks quit at 30 and 32. I'm too old to be carrying this band on my shoulders. Well, if you made the right decisions in the earlier parts of the band and started setting up things so you didn't have to worry about this big chunk of money, you would be easier to struggle because there would be less. And we played our last show March 13th in Philadelphia. From what I understand, we were one of the last shows in the country that actually went from start to finish. You know what I mean? So that was the first day of a 30 day tour. We had <laughs> easily $30,000 worth of gear and merch and crew and sound guy and rented, uh, a, a t- you know, a table, a, a, a board and, you know, all these things that we, cause we were, you know, going for, we're playing under thy art. Like we had to do the thing, you know, we had to look good. So we put all this money into it and then they were like, go home grand opening grand closing tours over go home so then we had all this debt and we had you know 20 odd thousand dollars on the credit card and we owed the merch company 15 grand and we had all this money and then we we're like shit what are we gonna do here and this is even for a band that controlled its debt pretty well now we put everything online and luckily thank you to everybody who bought anything we sold through most of it we were able to recoup and what did we do we paid Every damn thing off that we had, we had a little money in the bank and we used that little money we had saved and that money, we paid every single thing off down to zero. So when we come back to touring, we don't have to worry about anything. So the idea of not taking any of that money over the course of losing everything during COVID, but putting it back into the band was a very difficult, but responsible way to make sure when we come back, we're not going to hit any debt. And there it is. That's it. That's the mindset you have to have. You can't think, well, all right, well, we're not gonna be able to work for the next whoever knows how long. Let's pay off some of this debt and put some of the money in our pockets because then what happens when all that money's gone? Then somebody has to be responsible to pay it off. And who's that gonna be? It's gonna be the two guys that own the business. And who's that? Me and Will. And that means we're (laughs) gonna be responsible to pay these massive credit card bills every month when we don't have any money coming in from the band. like. Those are the things that destroy the band. So that's why I say controlling your debt and controlling what comes in and out of the band in a smart manner is always going to be the key to longevity, you know?
2: I think that this is also one of the reasons for why there needs to be trust and communication in a band because I've noticed that oftentimes bands will get broken up or shatter or whatever because they don't trust the person making the financial decisions
0: fit and autopsy is a really easy band that way. And that's because I trust Will with my family. Why wouldn't I trust him with the money coming in? You know what I mean? And we're always super transparent with each other. Like, this is how much money the tour is. These are the contracts for the tour. If anybody wants to look at it. And I mean, there was a point in time where we were out on tour and I was paying the band members that were touring And not paying myself. Like, so everybody knows, like, all right, like, we're in a position where, you know, these guys want to keep this band where it needs to be. But I think a lot of people try to, like, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry. I got to get under control. You don't need to worry about what's going on here. So, like, clarity and transparency on the numbers is the most important thing. Like, you can't, whether you're honest or not, If you're not telling people everything, it leaves a space in there for them to wonder.
2: To inject creativity. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, let's think about it. We're all pretty crazy people in this industry. You know, artists and musicians tend to be a little wild, you know, and it's real easy to get caught up in the idea of, oh, yeah, you know, like this guy's not telling us everything. And my guys will tell me, God, you're so annoying. Like you tell me all these things I don't need to know. And it's like, yeah, but now you're never going to ask a question. You don't need to. And you also know that if you want to ask a question, you can ask whatever you want. You know what I mean? Like, hey, look, this is how much money is in this envelope. And if you want to count it, you're more than welcome to it. You know what I mean? Here are the deposit slips. You counted the money yesterday. You can see that we're putting the money in the bank. Here's the bank statements. You can see all that. Like, don't over control your band to the point where you're not giving everybody all the information, because if you're not giving everybody all the information, they're just going to make that information up. And then you're going to have to deal with that.
2: Let's talk about guitar some. Cool, because uh, we've been talking for a long time and we haven't even brought it up. And I know that uh, you know I don't want to take up your whole birthday.
0: Oh, that's fine. I have no plans until later. I'm here for you. All
2: right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about guitar. You cannot be a slouch and be in a band with Will because I know what kind of standards he's got for uh, guitar playing. <laughs> just as a producer, his producer brain. So Christ. right? Just the fact that you play in a band with him already is like, uh, it's, it's just like vouches for your abilities. Um, and I want to talk, I want to talk about your right hand.
0: Okay. It's the only thing I got,
2: <laughs> but isn't that the most important thing?
0: 110%. I love picking and I love playing fast. So yeah.
2: What made you realize that right hand work was the most important aspect?
0: Going to Nam. How so? Man, you're gonna make me talk shit. I'll do it not scared. Just don't name names. I won't, but they know who they are. Uh, <laughs> that's
2: fine. So I have right, to live with it.
0: Right-hand guitar playing, and, and Tim is, first of all, let me say this. Tim and Will have made me, over the course of the past 10 years, made me a much better guitar player. I was in hardcore bands, and that's where my right hand comes from. When you're in a hardcore band. Your left hand plays a handful of chords. Your right hand does all the work. You know, so I learned everything I learned about right hand playing, playing guitar in a hardcore band or punk rock bands. But like you go to Nam, and you s- see and hear the most sparkly, clean, legato-y left hand runs ever. Right. So one day I sat down and I'm playing and I'm just chunking away. And this person that is like excessively good at guitar it's like, man, you got quite a right hand. And it made me sit back and think for a little bit. And then that started happening a lot. And then I started talking to other guys that are excessively good guitar players on both ends of the spectrum. And they told me like, picking is everything. Like you can have all the left hand shred in the world, but if your right hand is weak, it doesn't matter when you play live, it's going to come through. It's going to show. And Mr. John Brown (laughs) said something online that if you're not, downpicking every riff that is meant to be downpicked, you're cheating the industry or something along those lines, (laughs) I believe was a post that I read from you. And I believe that, you know, there are even things that we play live that I will downpick and make my right hand suffer because it just sounds better. It sounds cleaner. It hits harder. And I think a lot of players out there are incredible, but if your rhythm game isn't up to par then you can't be in a band like Fit for an Autopsy. You can't be in a band that that does what we do. And um, yeah, it's I appreciate you noticing that because that's it's literally all I have. I got some vibrato <laughs> and a little bit of legato, but my right hand is my savior. You know, that's what gets me through the tour. So
2: I can tell you that with recording bands, when uh, say you have a band with more than one guitar player, one is just has a stronger right hand than the other. It makes such a massive difference. Like, it's not even funny what a difference it makes. I, I remember I was recording this one band, and the the level of uh, the disparity between the two guitar players was vast. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. But the guy that was really, really awesome and is one of the best guitar players I've ever recorded is a super nice, meek kind of guy, and he didn't want to offend the other Dude, I wanted him to play all the guitars, but he was uncomfortable with that. He wanted the other guy to have a shot. And he was so uncomfortable with it, in fact, that uh, he left the studio to go to like, Disney World or whatever so that he okay. wouldn't be able to record. He didn't want to argue about it. He just took himself out of the situation. So... He came back later that night and the track had been recorded and it didn't sound nearly as good as the tracks I had recorded with him. And he was like, why does that sound weird? Like, why does that kind of sound like shit? It's like, cause it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, not your right hand, the end. So we redid it. But, uh, but the difference, the, it sounded like a completely different band, completely different record.
0: The cool thing with me and Tim is like, and John has seen us live When you walk from one side of the stage to the other, you don't lose any depth. Like both of us are digging in, and you ever see, you ever do that? Like you ever watch a live band play, and you get right up front, so you're not getting front of house. You're just getting cab sound, right? Yeah. And you listen to one side of the stage, then you walk to the other side. And not to say that I'm as good of a guitar player as Tim, and not to say that Tim doesn't do things better than I do, or vice versa. Just the idea that both of us are digging into those strings and creating that thump, you know what I mean? That, that gung, gung, gunk noise that you get when you really lay into the strings and you're not just feathering the pick across the strings in a way where you're scraping out the note. <laughs> like, you know, I, it, it feels good. Like those parts where I like hit one note and then mute. And then, you know, uh, Tim is riding out or, with blue next to him and you can, you know, you're feeling it. It's hitting you in the back. And that's, that's why I can never get rid of cabs on stage. Cause you need that, you know, you need, that's what keeps me going. So yeah, I mean, I'm awful in the studio. I get extra stressed out when it's just me like recording guitar. solos. like, God, I feel bad for Will because like (laughs) on stage, sure I can do it. But when I'm in the studio, there's this unnecessary amount of pressure I put on myself. And I'm sure you've you know performance anxiety you know what of i mean course. like I, I have it so bad and it's even just being in front of a camera by myself is stressful you know what i mean so yep. i i have a hard time with that but when it comes to live playing there's just rules you know and having that right hand it makes the difference it truly does and then i again i appreciate Anybody who understands that logic and I'm, and as a music producer and engineer, I'm sure you've spent enough time in the studio going, fuck, like, come on, man, like get in there, dig into those strings. Oh, my wrist is tired. Yeah. It's supposed to be like, (laughs) get in there and dig in, you know, and we try to keep that standard live too. You know And I mean? You can, you can do all the fancy shit in the world, but when it comes down to playing rhythms, that hand better be there. You know,
2: what do you do to develop it? Or what did you do to develop it?
0: Play as much as i can all the time um don't cheat spend the time like really digging in and and really learning learn how to hold your pick properly you know learn that there are different angles and different ways to hold your pick for the different things that you're doing you know if you're digging straight in you can you can get away with coming at it a little more straight on if you're string skipping you better be working on that downward pick angle and like you know there's just things that you can do to make yourself a better right-hand player that you don't even realize will help you be a better left-hand player because once you don't have to think about this, then you focus on this, you know, and I'm becoming better and better with my left hand. And it's all because I've learned a lot of stuff about right-hand playing. Um, Wes Houck really broke down the way I was holding my pick and, and what I was doing wrong and how I could be more economic about my playing. But there's also... The caveman, like the guy in me that's like, oh, just beat the shit out of it, you know what I mean? And there's a place for that too, you know what I mean? Like
2: Sometimes you do just have to beat the shit out of it.
0: Yeah, it's the rules. Like fancy playing is great, but like sometimes meat and potatoes, man, like you got to bang it out, you know what I mean? You got to go back to your roots on it and like just play the part dig in don't be afraid you know drive it like you stole it kind of thing you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) and 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 when you can do that it'll really help develop the way that you play and you know tim is a little has a little more finesse than me but i can down pick all day long learn go go back and learn how to play those metallica riffs the right way man like those guys in the early days they were doing it right and The shit that I came up on, like, you know, Metallica and Megadeth and, like, all those bands, they were all picking those parts, man, and they were savages about it. Hetfield's right hand, the reason people talk about it is because it's real. It's a real thing. That dude's a machine, you know, and whether you like them or hate them, he created so many things that we do every day to sound good. It's ridiculous, you know what I mean? The guy's a goddamn monster, and there's just players out there i mean john's right hand go watch john's videos the dude's a beast at it and you know i'm not trying to you know hand job you on the podcast here but you know as well as i do this (laughs) is something we've talked about multiple times yeah you know what i mean like dig in get in there bounce those strings make them work you know hit it hard enough to almost throw it at a key like learn learn what you're doing and and learn where to hit the brakes and learn where to cram that pedal to the floor you know what i mean and And once you start getting more comfortable with that and you build up some stamina, everything else gets easier.
1: I've noticed as well that people often try to blame why their guitar doesn't sound good on Certain attributes of their signal chain, like, you know, the pickups, like people, there's some people that are constantly changing. F-
2: there, There is a part of their signal chain that's
1: fucking yeah, it's, it's, the, called it's, their their it's called the right hand. <laughs> it's exactly. It's hand. You stole the thunder from me. I hate oh. it. <laughs> Sorry. It's all good. It just, it just came to me. Yeah, it's... Yeah, basically I mean, like people are just constantly changing all that shit, trying different amps, trying different axe effects, is adding more gates to their axe effects. It's like just fucking play the guitar, dude.
0: Well, there's this story that I hear often about I believe if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Ted Nugent <laughs> played through Eddie Van Halen's rig. I think that's the story. I could be mistaken. Somebody can correct me, but I'm pretty sure it was Ted Nugent, our our favorite American, Ted Nugent. Jesus Christ, what a <laughs> I fucking... I
2: he is a sick guitar player. Though. What a
0: fucking maniac that guy turned out to be. But um, whatever, he's part of the story. So he tried to play through Eddie's gear, and he couldn't make it do what Eddie did. Of course not. Right? But Ted, Ted Nugent, while maybe I don't agree with his politics, he's a great guitar player, right? Yeah. So. Um, That's the story. It's the idea of the rig doesn't make the player. You build the rig around your hands, right? I have a signature set of guitar pickups out there that work really great for me. But if you don't dig in and do what I do, they may not work for you. It may not be the right thing, right? There's different types and styles of playing guitar. You have to find what works for your hands, which... Again, leads us right back to the whole thing and how you want to sound and how you want to present yourself and the work that you're willing to put into your playing. You know, dude, I'm I'm a budget level, you know, rhythm guitar player guy that's got a few solos strewn about that kind of secretly make me look like I'm a pretty good guitar player. You know, I just I secretly, happen, yeah, secretly <laughs> look. I'm not a good guitar player is what I'm trying to say. I'm just secrets that make me look like I'm a good guitar player. You know, and and like that's okay because I'm just focusing on what makes me good or making makes people think that I'm good. So that means I'm doing a good job for the music and then that's all that matters, you know, but you have to figure out what kind of player you are in reality as compared to what you want to be. You can't blame your amp for your tone all the time because I've played on amps that sound amazing for some people. And, I start digging in and it just sounds like a nightmare and I gotta go in and change the settings and figure out what's what and then it sounds great for me. You know what I mean? Like usually too not, much gain, right? Yeah, way too much gain. <laughs> <laughs> Why is there so much gain on this? And like I think somebody was telling me that John Petrucci's I was saying that the JP Two C is like so gainy. Right. And they're like, yeah, because John is a very accurate light player. So he uses a lot more gain in his settings to get that controlled tone that he needs for his style of playing. I'm not going to sit down and tell that dude that he's not playing right. He's playing exactly (laughs) how he needs to play. That dude's a goddamn alien. You know what I mean? But he knows what works for his hands. Yes. Educate yourself on what works for your hands. It's not the amp. It's not the pickups. It's not the pedal. It's all of those things in conjunction with the way that you play.
1: And also, just, just for John there, it's also he's learned how to control that amount of gain because yes. I've turned the JP2C Channel 3 on with Shred Mode on and the gain on full, and I can't control it.
0: <laughs> no way, dude. <laughs> that guy's. he is such like a accurate perfect guitar player, he could literally do whatever the frick he wants. You know what I mean? Not all of us have the benefits of being, you know, an alien crossed with a wizard. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't, (laughs) doesn't work that way for all of us. You know, some of us
2: cross with the wizard.
0: He could do whatever it, like we talk about like the greats, like the Steve Weiss, the Paul Gilberts, the John Petrucci's, the, the guys that make you feel like shit about your playing right because they can do anything you know what I mean and then you get you get to these other guys like the Jason Richardson's and the Jeff Loomises, and and they're in that category too and then you get down to losers like me that are like you guys got an extra gate so I'm not squeaking the whole time I'm playing yeah. but
2: you know what man if a band sounds sick live Mm -hmm. if a band sounds sick live there's two possibilities one uh they're running good sounding tracks
0: (laughs) backing track (coughs) Mm. yeah well (laughs) that's one possibility but uh
2: take that out of the equation the only way that it happens is that the players sound badass
0: yeah as a team you figured out what you have to do to make the team present itself the way you want to present itself and what's that come back to work you know you got to work you got to spend time doing it to figure out what you're doing wrong and then you can figure out what you're doing right. Man, we well, didn't always sound great,
1: you know? Yeah, it just takes time. John Petrucci did do one thing wrong. What's that? And it's only one thing. He alternate-picked Master of Puppets. Did he? <laughs> I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. Dude, he could
2: definitely downpick it if you wanted to.
0: Oh, my God. He could downpick it with his nipples. He doesn't need to. <laughs> the dude's a, a monster, you know? And, and And again, like, let's think about what we're talking about. We're talking about I'm never going to be as good as John Petrucci. I'm never going to be as good as Jason Richardson or, you know, Jeff Loomis. I'm never going to be one of those guys. I'm just... Do you have an interest in that? Not at this point in my life. At this point in my life, I just want to get better so I can give more to the project that I'm doing and make my band sound better. That's my goal. I don't care... Would I love to wake up one day and have magic sparkly hands that can play 8,000 notes per beat? And like, sure, like, let's fucking do that. But the reality of it is is I'm 45 and I'm only going to get as good as I can apply myself to get. So what do I want to do? Do I want to lock myself in the house and, you know, figure out how to be that guy? Or do I want to work hard at the things that I'm good at and get better for my project? And that's what I want to do. I want to apply myself to getting better in a way that benefits the band and come to the realization that I don't need to be Rick Graham. You know what I mean? Like I can't be Rick Graham. I can't be Guthrie Govan. I can't be all of these guys that I wish I could. So what do I do? I borrow a little bit of their flavor when I can to make myself feel like I can do something <laughs> cool. And then I just go back to just being the blue collar guitar player that I am the working class touring, happy to be here guitar player. You know, like, think about that. Like, I've achieved things that people who are a thousand times better than me at guitar can't achieve because they're not willing to put in the work. Like, there's something pretty honorable about that.
2: I agree. And it proves that you don't have to be a Jeff Loomis in order to have a career.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps. You know, but well, of <laughs> You know, it certain, certainly Helps to be, you know, a guy that can Blow on the strings and Create sounds that I can't create You know, after being in my little Shitty studio for two months writing for My band, but like, if you're Willing to put in the work, you can still achieve Great things, you know what I mean? So, yeah, I don't know, I, I think As a guitar player, you have to Choose your lane, you know, do you want To be the guy in the fast lane That is crushing it, but maybe not getting to do the thing that, you know, we're talking about doing, or do you want to be the guy or girl or person that is able to tick most of the boxes in order to be in the driver's seat and do what we're talking about doing. And there's room for everybody, you know, whatever it is that you choose, there's not, there's not a wrong answer. It just depends on what your goals are, you know, and, and that's really important to, know your lane and know your goals and know where you want to be. And like due to picture surfaced on the internet of me with uh, Lee from Born of Osiris, Angel <laughs> Vivaldi, and uh, Rusty Cooley. Oh, yeah. Okay. Funny guy. So this is a Nam picture that surfaced. And I said to Will, I was like, look at this fucking picture of me with these guys who have forgotten more notes than I've ever played. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, like, the realities of that is I know my role and I know where I am. But these guys want to talk to me because they know that I put in the work. These guys see me at NAM and they say man, you're getting better. You're you're doing different things and then Rusty's like, "Hey, do you want to be on my podcast?" It's like, "Wow, like like why does Rusty Cooley want to talk to me? Like what do I have to offer a guy like that?" But my work ethic and the things that I do shine more than maybe my guitar playing and those things can carry you in this industry.
2: Yeah, I think that there's this understanding in the industry between people who have vastly different styles of playing or music or ability levels. There's all, none of that matters when they're compared to the respect that people have for each other when they know that somebody else earned their spot at the table.
0: I think so. And I think the... The most important thing to remember in all of this is that your ability to do whatever it is that you set out to do is going to be the thing that people are always going to look at the most. You know, maybe you're not as great at guitar as they are, but if you're good and you can do the things that you do, then um, you can move forward in a respectable manner, you know, if you're not faking certain things. And Ron Thal, um, Bumblefoot, He's uh, another one of those like wild anomaly guitar players. He
2: he is an anomaly. We did a (laughs) podcast with him that's coming out really soon.
0: Wild, dude. Hey, hey, Pat, you want to come to my house and record this? Like, you know, he's just (laughs) something else, dude. I love that guy. Years and years ago, I was in this hardcore band called Nothing Left to Mourn, and um, we recorded with Ron at his house in Princeton, New Jersey. So one day, you know, Ron's like this jovial, like, fun. Like, he's got this really Energetic. Unique, yeah, unique, <laughs> deep voice where, hey guys, you know where we're gonna go? It's like, Rocky Balboa meets like the most insane guitar player you've ever seen. <laughs> I'm gonna put nine thumble, th- thimbles on my fingers and tap this part out. It's like, okay, you go ahead and make me feel terrible about my guitar playing. I'm gonna sit in a corner and cry on myself. But he said this really interesting thing to me. And, uh, He said, do you know what makes a good guitar player a great guitar player? And I was like, no. He's like, writing within your ability and doing it the best that you can. And I took a minute to think about that. And I was like, here's this. Yeah. Here's this guy that, like... I'm going to play Mozart on my guitar and I'm going to tap it and I'm going to do it on a double neck guitar. And and it's going to have these things that move back and forth. And like, did you ever see the foot guitar with the wings that Vigier made for him? Like Jesus yeah, Christ, man. No, like, but I believe it. <laughs> oh my God. He's, he's insane. Like he's really like the artist's artist, you know what I mean? He's all his ideas are crazy and he's so talented and he's so nice. And like, here's this guy giving me this bit of advice for somebody who was so far removed from the industry at that point. But dude, this it's really the truth. You know, he said you, you step outside your ability once in a while to showcase the idea that you are learning and growing or, or that you can be this kind of guitar player that you wish you were. And then you write everything in your pocket so it makes you look like you're more skilled than you really are. And that's the smartest thing that I've ever heard. Like, it's the truth, right? Like, if you're playing something that's easy for you to play and you're on stage, the kid that can't play that is going to be like, holy crap.
2: You never heard B.B. King try to play an ingve lick. Right. You heard him play blues.
0: Blues. And very well. Very well. In his world, in his lane. And yes, you watch Stevie Ray Vaughan play blues and you're like, okay, this is different. Different skill set different approach but bb had it nailed for what he was great at and i remember seeing a thing he said he doesn't play chords he doesn't do certain <laughs> things like you know he King was a very interesting soul you know he had a very interesting way of talking about his playing but that's a prime example of playing in your lane you know what i mean
2: i think uh so you played with slayer so uh once. have you uh, one once. time in my damn life did you get to watch Carrie uh sound check
0: uh i did not Get to watch Kerry soundcheck.
2: Okay. So reason I'm bringing that up is because I think he's another, people might disagree with me, but I'll, I'll go down swinging on this one. I think he's another <laughs> example of that. And I didn't used to think so. I used okay. to think what a lot of people think about Slayer solos and all that until we played with them. And I watched him soundcheck a couple times, a couple nights in a row. And he played all of South of Heaven and season the Abyss by himself, up on stage, start to finish. Everything. Solos, everything. It was no for fucking note. Exact. So everything he does is intentional. Mm-hmm. It, there is nothing, people think it's random. There was nothing random about it. He was playing it exactly right. Yeah. Everything about it was exactly right. And it makes me realize you don't hear him doing anything besides what you hear him doing. Right. He's great at, that
1: i think that happens with a lot of artists that are maybe misunderstood another example of that to me would be alan holdsworth if you're familiar al Oh, well, i'm
2: familiar that people think uh he's We good
1: well he's yeah he's really good but like when it comes to the musicality side of it like i it blows my mind every single time i listen to it but i yeah. know that it's good but I don't have the level of understanding for it, if that makes sense. Like I love his music. I think it's absolutely fascinating because there's certain points when it really does hit me. But I think it's similar to that is that people probably to a degree would think that Alan Holdsworth is completely random too. Yeah. And it's not. And it's not, of course. No.
0: Let's think about like, step back from this crazy guitar player world. Like my favorite band in the world is Steely Dan. They are by far my most favorite band. Like if if I'm having a weird day and I need to kind of wrap myself around life, I go back to those, like Asia has like this link to my childhood. They're for sure my favorite, right? But when you listen to that stuff.
2: You know, Bubblefoot sings for Asia.
0: What? The band Asia?
2: Yes. Right? Right. That's right. Brown, right? Didn't he tell us that? He's the lead he singer for Asia. Yeah. You
0: know, I, I don't necessarily want to even argue with that. That sounds like the perfect job for him. If I was you just know saying. that guy, he's insane. <laughs> but I'm talking about the Steely Dan record Asia, but good Oh oh,
2: sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry. See, I, I don't know Steely Dan. It's okay. I thought you meant the band no, Asia.
0: No, 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 no. Steely Dan has a record called Asia. And it's one of my favorites. So when you go and you listen to those records and you hear those records, you say to yourself, wow, like this is pretty good. But then when you go and you watch the documentaries and you learn about what they were doing in the studio and how only the best musicians wanted to work with them, they had all like Bernard Purdy played drums on tracks and like things like that. And when you start getting into that side of the musicality of the band and the the songwriting, like there's a reason why the best want to play with those bands because there's notoriety there, right? But when you listen to the song, It doesn't sound crazy until you start breaking down the individual things and learning how they're creating this music, right? So you have to take that into account with a lot of things. Like sometimes things sound unbelievable because they're unbelievable. Like when you listen to some guy that's like a rocket ship playing a million notes a a minute and you just hear these crazy things. But then there are these bits of music out there that you listen to it and it doesn't sound overly complicated, but the composition is crazy. And maybe the timing is wild and the way they're putting the pieces together and they're doing certain things. So, you know, I think that a band like Slayer is a good example of that because as a package, it sounds intense, but then when you start breaking things down and you can see what they're doing as individual players, like look at all that early Lombardo stuff, like nobody was doing that back then nobody was playing that fast and, and didn't have chops like who who in 1982 was doing that <laughs> nobody. you know what I mean right so like yeah maybe maybe by today's standards it's dad metal or whatever but that guy like kicked doors down for guys like Gene Hoagland to come out and do what they did you know what I mean like those those guys were for certainly doing things at the same time but the spotlight and the focus was on Slayer Like that band formed in what, like 80, 81, they released their first piece of music. Something
2: like that. 79, 80, something like that. In
0: 1979, think about what music sounded like, (laughs) you know? So like there's, there's no question in my mind that there is homage to be paid to these people and they're playing these things for 40 years live on stage, like and they're doing it perfect. So you could say whatever you wanna say about the Kerry Kings and the people in that world. But I mean, there is there is a reason why those guys are selling out stadiums. And there's a reason why Kerry King was able to do what he did. And, you know, I think songwriting ability, there's always gonna be a better guy in a band. Like, Will Putney is the songwriter. Like, there is no question. The guy's a genius. How do I argue with Will Putney about writing songs? Like, I don't. You know, I shut up and I stay in my lane and I learn the riffs that he's writing and we contribute in the ways that we can. But that's the guy. But like, Will writes the songs and then we go out and we play them for months and months at a time. So we become this thing that has a, a multi directional kind of. Um, avenue where Will's coming in in his way and then he's going that way and then we're going there and we're we're playing the shows and we're doing the things and then we all come back together and we write a record and then we break off and we do separate stuff and he doesn't think about the music until it's time for him we think about the music when it's time for us and when you get too many hands in the cookie jar it ruins it and when people aren't capable of doing their jobs the right way it ruins it so there's like there's a lot of avenues that people miss when they look at guitar players and bands as a whole. You know, I don't know if I'm rambling or if any of this makes sense.
2: It makes per- it makes perfect sense. I think it's really, really interesting that you guys really take the knowing your role thing to the next level. Like you said, your job is to tour.
0: Yeah, shut up and play guitar. That's my job. <laughs> however...
2: Yeah. This is not like a hired gun situation. It's your band. A lot of people who are just like for who say my job is touring, it's not usually their band. So it's just interesting that within the leadership of the band, the roles are that defined. That's actually really rare. But I think that's part of why you're successful is because you guys do know your roles and you respect your roles and you each take your roles very seriously.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you own a restaurant, you might not be a chef and then you... You, if you are a chef and you own the restaurant, then you have a different role, right? So if you own a restaurant and you hire a chef to do something, the chef does it and you don't step on the chef's stick, and the, the chef doesn't step on yours, right? You handle the business, they handle the cooking and the mm-hmm. writing of the menus and all those things. But if you are a chef and you own the restaurant, you have to figure out what your role is going to be and you have to figure out how you're going to produce that. So We've taken a lot of a lot of shots to the chin trying to do things in a way where maybe I want to write and it's my band and blah blah blah. And then I realized, yo, Pat, shut up. Like Will is really good at this. Why are you gonna get in the way of that? And the first record we wrote together in a studio in a traditional way. Bunch of people in the studio, banging it out on the instruments, spend a month or two writing the songs, record the record. Second record, Hellbound will had all these great ideas and he was pumping them out and pumping them out and i struggled through that record because i wanted to have more input i was stomping my feet like a baby right and the third record i was like you know i'm gonna shut up i'm gonna shut up and i'm gonna trust my friend to do the thing that he does and then it was hey i wrote these riffs listen to him what do you think wow these are great i can't even argue at all with any of this. And then, okay, send me some riffs, send him a couple of riffs, come back from tour. He's got 14 records worth of material written. You know what I mean? So it's like, how am I going to fight with this guy? So then I start learning. He does want me to contribute. He does want us to write leads. He does want us to write solos. He does want us to help arrange certain parts and, you know, have input on lyrics. And he is willing to do that. But at the same time, he's so creative and he's open to all of these different avenues of music and he records all these bands and he sees what works and he sees what doesn't. Who the fuck am I to tell this guy how we should be writing riffs? Like, shut up. And now I realize that that's the best thing that I've ever done for my band because I don't know everything and I'm not the guy that understands everything. I know what I know, so be good at what I'm good at, take direction properly, and that's going to be more functional. And that's how we write our records. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're working. I can't get too detailed on it, but we are working on some things currently and we have a lot of interesting things going on in the background. And I will say there is some music stuff going on. We're not going to say what or where, (laughs) but that is the most that I'm allowed to tell you about (coughs) what we're doing right now. So, mu- will-
2: so your band is doing some music stuff.
0: Yeah, the, the, the music, the <laughs> music, the music band that I'm in is doing some music things. You know, I got my I, nose I broke for sticking that. my face in other people's business. But uh, yeah, who would have would have thought that a band is making music? But we're doing some, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're doing some music. Fuck you, man. We're doing some music things. Um, but yeah, it's it's going good. And um, with that being said, I'm dealing with that right now. You know, Will being the ultra creative person that he is like, you know, you, you, sometimes you learn how to sit back. So I think if you're you're in a band and you're creating something, just remember that sometimes there's a guy who's got a, or a girl that's got a better idea than you and shut up and let it become <laughs> what it is. Like you can learn more by shutting up and watching than you can by talking about what you think, you know.
2: You know, we made that course with Will that is really cool that you guys allowed your song to be on it. Thank you for that. Yes. But uh, you know, we we film stuff with producers all the time. And they range from being guys that love to talk on camera and do it all the time to guys that don't want to talk on camera, but they agree to work with us anyways. And everything in between, some guys that don't know how to finish a sentence to save their lives. Yeah, And then some guys that have a vision for how everything should go. Will is definitely a unique one. But what I realized uh, from working with him was you kind of just got to let him do his thing because it's going to be great. He he has such a strong vision for how things should be. And uh, the thing is, he's usually right. When it comes yeah. to his vision. so
0: now you've nailed the worst part about my life. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's right ninety six percent of the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll argue with him when he's wrong, but the thing is, he's usually right. So we we understood that very quickly, and we're just like, all right, we're just gonna we're gonna go with the flow. We're not going to impose our will on this. <laughs> pun and no pun intended. We're not gonna impose uh, our will on will. Yeah, it, just because it's not needed. I mean, we're gonna do what we're good at, but uh, that guy—that guy has a vision for things, and uh, the vision is right on. And it's good to just let it be.
0: Well, we talk about in the band pretty often how you can make Will change his mind, and the <laughs> only—sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Will, this is gonna be this is gonna be very truthful about you, and it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just the truth. Will is a stubborn animal in the idea of. You want me to change it. You go ahead and show me something better. And one thing that is annoying when it comes to business or tour or writing or anything is somebody saying, well, I don't like that. And you say, "Okay, well, what do you want to do? And they go, well, I don't know, but I don't want to do that. And it's like, well, until you have a better car for me to drive in, we're going to drive in this car right here until you can give me the better thing. And I think that's a really important dynamic that makes Will as good at what he is good at is that he isn't willing to compromise because you don't think it's right. You have to show him why you think it's wrong, and he has to then agree. And we've been in a lot of instances where I have been foot down, not into it. And a great example of that is one of my favorite songs that we have. It's that song Napalm Dreams, which is the last track off of our... I think it's off the... I, now you're now you putting me on the spot, but it's one of the last tracks on one of our last two records. Put yourself on the spot. Yeah, you putting myself... It. But Napalm Dreams is one of my favorite tracks that we've ever written. And it's one of those things where I hated it when we first did it because it was such a risk. Like, there's a lot of clean vocals and there's a lot of things on there that are maybe not exactly what I would have expected Fit for an Autopsy to be doing, but we are doing it. And he was right. It came out incredible. And I love it. And I argued about it and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but we went forward with it and we did it. And by the time it was done, it's one of my favorite tracks we've ever done. So it's just, it's hard to separate yourself from the fears of, you know, stepping into new things. But when there's a guy with that much control and is that confident, Sometimes you just got to shut up and let them do it, you know, and and that's that's hard for people in bands. It really is. It's hard to let go, you know, and uh, and everybody knows how like weak willed and easy to get along with. I am. So, you know, you could just imagine <laughs> what those phone calls were like, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, but I I love Will and he is really good at what he does and it definitely helps us move forward for sure as a band.
2: I guess back to the trust thing, you got to be willing to trust the person you're working with. Yes. If you don't, then there's a bigger problem than the song itself. I think.
0: Yeah, one hundred and ten percent. You know, how can you be in a project that you are going to spend your whole life hopefully doing if you don't have faith in the people around you? You know, and sometimes I just like to argue, you know what I mean? Sometimes I just like to get, <laughs> to get under Will's skin, but I know what's going to happen in the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got to flex a little bit just to make yourself feel better about it. But at the end of the day, like this is a team effort and we're not writing a song for Will Putney. We're writing a song for Fifth for an Autopsy and you have to do what's best in that situation. And um, yeah, I know my role. Like you said before, like I, I, I know my defined role in the band and over the course of the years, it's developed more and more into what it is. And that's just it. You know,
2: I think that's awesome. One of the things that, uh, on this podcast that the guitar players who have had long-term consistently successful bands, the one thing that they all have in common is that there's really good communication in their bands and they know their roles. Like, and, uh, that's, that's like, everybody we've had on who's in a successful band
0: yeah i mean what's wrong with having a job i mean it's a band right it's a business there's a job you know you want you want to eat the cake you gotta be part in you know baking it you know what i mean like it's not it's not a gift it's it's something that you're creating and you, everybody's gonna have their strong points. You know, Some guys are gonna be better in the studio, like you said. Some guys are gonna be better at interviewing. Some guys are gonna be better on stage. Some guys are gonna need help, and that's an important thing, too, that we haven't touched upon. We've been talking about a lot of these things, but I tell Tim, like, yo, I'm having a super hard time getting this riff down, like, seems like you got it. Like, sit down with me, show me what I'm doing wrong. Like, having, being able to be humble but still know what your role and what you're good at. Those are two lessons that were really hard for me to learn. And I'm getting better at what I do because I'm learning at 45 years old that shutting up and asking for what you need and watching and learning are, are going to help me, you know? And, and like, I feel like we've repeated a lot of these topics, but man, it really is. That's what it is. That's the, that's the key and the secret for us. Maybe not for everybody, but for us, it certainly is.
2: Well, I mean, how can a band work out if uh, someone needs help with something and either doesn't ask or the other people aren't willing to give it?
0: It's called backing tracks. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> we we could talk. I mean, listen, for an Autopsy definitely uses some samples live. I mean, who doesn't? They are not rhythm tracks. They are not solo tracks. They are not kick drums. They are not vocals. They are... Added tones, third and fourth guitar parts, uh, ambient noises, things like that. There was one riff that we used in one song that we realized, number one, it's almost impossible to play live. It's doable. We could have done it, but it's almost impossible. And number two, the idea of this part in the song Iron Moon is for it to be like heavy. And when one guitar would cut out to play that lead, it sounded thin. So what's the solution to that? Three guitar players, because Fit for an Autopsy technically has three guitar players, but Will's not going to come on tour. So put 10 seconds of music on the tape. Man, I fucking hated doing that. I hated it, and every time we would play the song, I would look at Tim and I would just shake my head, and we did it, and it went over fine, but I hated doing it. So I would rather struggle through that and maybe not, play as well as the backing track then then use backing tracks to play certain things but that's all that i'm going to say about that and we're going to move on from this conversation at this point because this is a slippery slope that offends a lot of people if you take it the wrong way i don't see anything wrong with it yeah but i think backing tracks is ruining the expectation of what the listener expects from a live show and I miss the days of going to a show and seeing the crowd go crazy for a certain section of music and then having the band repeat that section or do something different or live like do like a, a thing that wasn't expected or the band didn't even know that they were gonna do like all right, you know, one more time and then drop back into that part. Like that doesn't exist anymore because people are playing to a click and a backing track, which you have to do now, right? In order to keep up with the times, but maybe isn't the most fun thing to do. So that's a, I guess that's a topic, maybe a touchy one that we kind of fell into here, but (laughs) yeah, we we can leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. I I don't, I don't have any issues with anybody doing anything that they want to do, but just so you know, like I miss the days of no click. I miss the days of being able to jump back into you know, the verse or chorus of a song because the crowd is reacting to it and you want to keep that momentum going in the show. And, you know, there's a very high standard now at the way that we have to do things. So the click is necessary and the tracks are necessary. And, you know, it just, things have changed a a great deal. So, yeah,
2: it's a different era. One last thing I want to talk about is that I think this is interesting. Um, You've aligned yourself with some companies that, You aren't really even endorsed by, or that you don't, you're not an endorsee of, but you love their products like, uh, happy cables. So, like, good example. I want to know more about that because usually musicians are not down unless there's like an endorsement.
0: All right. So the happy cable thing kind of happened really organically. I wouldn't say that I'm not endorsed by them because I, as of today, we released, um, It's not a signature cable because a cable is a cable. It's just like a colorway thing that we did together for fun. Like, I'm a big fan of, like, pink and purple and, like, all these colors that, like, I go on stage wearing, like, pink shirts. And people are like, how can you be a metal guy and like pink? You know, it's like, whatever, dude. I like what I like. So, as a matter of fact, funny, funny you should mention it. I happen to have it right here. Oh, it is pink. Yeah, it's pink. And he just makes these really cool cables. But he's an underdog. You know what I mean? He's a guy at his house in California that builds these cable by hand. And he started this little company and some people told me about it and I hit him up and he was excited to talk to like a player in a band that he had heard of. So we talked a little bit and he built me a cable and he sent it to me and I love it. I think it's great. And I would love to see this guy win. So he was like, oh, well, maybe we can endorse and do like a cable and you can get a percentage. And I was like, don't give me a percentage. Build me a few cables and send them to me. And then use my name for whatever it's worth or it's not worth to get a little bit of interest into you. So I started promoting him a little bit. And as soon as I started promoting him, he sold a handful of cables. So then he was like, well, let's do this thing. And I was like, cool, we'll do this thing. And now I just got a few free cables, and I'm stoked about that. And I'm not making any money off of this signature thing here. He wanted to, and I told him, no, keep your money, put it back into your company, because I believe in that. You know, I believe that, you know... He's a good guy, and he's got a family. And from what I can see from him, he's got the right mindset. So why not use my platform to help somebody else? There's none of that in the industry. I only see people grabbing for things where they can make a bundle of money or, again, align themselves with bigger things. I just wanted to do something cool with a really nice guy who I think is making a good product, right? And like I work with mayonnaise like the reason that I do that is because I wanted a very specific product. They make a really great product. I was with a much bigger company for a long time, and it just felt right to go to a company that I really enjoy the people and I have a much closer working relationship with. You know, with a company like Ibanez. While I still love their guitars and I still own some of their guitars, it just wasn't incredible. Incredible guitars. Like I love them. I have a really nice guitar that. I sold a bunch of years ago that I honestly just bought back because I just had to have it back. The actual a, guitar? The actual guitar okay. that I, I got just to one of my buddies. Thing. Yeah, yeah I, I had to buy it back. It was, it's just too good to not own. So, you know, it got offered back to me and I took it. But I also am sitting here staring at six or seven Mayonez guitars mixed in through because I truly believe in that company. Um, I'm working with a small company called Guitar Marie who for a little while was going through some really difficult things business-wise, like getting held up because promises were made to them and they were taken advantage of. And now they've pulled themselves out of that and their production is stepping up. And I stuck along with them because I knew that they were trying to do the right thing. So I think aligning yourself with things that make you happy and with things that maybe don't make you the most money, but they give you what you need and you gain some kind of relationship with those people is important. You know, and if happy cable blows up and I benefit from that, well, then great. But if not, and he just keeps making cool cables and I just get cool cables, then I benefit from that, too. You know what I mean? There's there's no loss for me. So I think there's a big amount of selfishness in the industry with what people are willing to align themselves with and the expectations that people have on what they deserve. And uh, I don't give a shit about that anymore. I, I fell into that for a little while. You know, I only want to work with these companies and they're going to give me these things because that's what I want. And it's like, sorry, man, that's not reality. And that that kick in the balls happened for me, you know, and (laughs) now now I look at it very differently. You know, I'm lucky I work with Ernie Ball for strings. You know, I work with Mayonez. I work with Guitar Marie. You know, I have a handful of companies that I'm working with. Recently, I started talking to the folks over at EVH a little bit, and they've been really kind to me where maybe 10 years ago they wouldn't be. But, you know, things have, have moved on and I know my place. So I like aligning myself with small, com- myself with smaller companies. I really do. I like the personal touch. But I mean, hey, I also don't make a lot of money doing that. So there is the idea of, like, there is a benefit to aligning yourself with a bigger company. And when people move on from smaller companies for that benefit, there's, there's reasons why. You know, there's, you know, two sides. You know what I mean?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. But it sounds to me like uh, you enjoy helping businesses that are still in the discovery growth phase.
0: Yeah, development phase. Yeah, sure. development
2: where, like, you can actually have an impact.
0: Well, like, think of it like this. I worked until a few years ago. Nobody gave a shit about my band. We were Happy Cable. We were Guitar Mary. We were the small guy getting stepped on by the big companies and, and not getting maybe what we deserved when we... You know, we're pulling people alive and doing things live that other bands weren't capable of that were playing over us, right? So we were the thing. So when I look at these small companies and I think about how I got treated as a player and how my band got treated by these people that told us to know our role and, and go where we're supposed to go, I understand better what they are going through than I do what the big boys are going through, you know? So when I work with those companies, it feels good to say, hey, like... I'm a guy who's working in the industry that some people give a shit about what I say. So instead of going to the big guy, I'm going to go to this guy over here who makes a better product and doesn't get any attention the same way that my band wasn't getting any attention a few years ago. So I can identify with that person or company or, you know, whatever it is that's going on. And I like that. I like working with like-minded people, you know? So I guess, I guess that's why I do it.
2: Makes a lot of sense. So, Patrick, I think this is a good place to to end the episode. I want to thank you for uh, coming on.
0: Thank you for having me. And I
2: had an awesome time
0: talking. Yeah. John Brown, you barely said anything. I don't know what's going on right now, dude.
1: Ah, you guys had a flow. Remember, I'm uh, slightly behind on your old uh, internet.
0: because <laughs> <laughs> well, in I England. love you. So yeah. every
1: single time I went to talk, Al had already come out with half a sentence. Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. That's right. That's no, all right. The flow was going. I didn't want to interrupt that. It's been lovely to speak to you, Patrick. It's been a very long time.
0: Yeah, it has, and I really do appreciate you guys uh, involving me in your podcast. You've had a lot of really great players on and really great people in the industry. So it's nice to be put on a shelf with those folks. So thank you.
2: Anytime. I like that he was very clear about his role.
0: Yeah and
1: obviously it took time cuz he was obviously saying that yeah i like that he was
2: i like that he was honest about that too
1: yeah but he's he found out quite quickly that all he needed to do was move out of will's way when it came to a lot of the songwriting stuff and that takes a lot cuz you know i can honestly say that i've been in that situation where you know I just want to write all of it, but sometimes you just have to remember that there are four, five, sometimes six other people in your band and just do what's best for the collective rather than for your own ego.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard. You have to be aware enough to realize that your ego is doing the talking.
1: And yeah, just time. A lot of the time it's just time. And yeah, I mean, if the results are good and you can see that the results are going good, then go with the flow and what's working rather than trying to change it.
2: Yeah. It's, it's like, I've met quite a few people who are just better than me at something in music and I've kind of just always let them do their thing because I've thought to myself, what's the point of like trying to get ego-ish about this when this person is clearly way better than me at this, uh, at this thing. I'm going to benefit if I have them do their thing, like for instance, on Doth Records, I mean, Amel's a way better rhythm guitar player than me. He's just a better guitar player. Why not have him play a lot of the rhythms? Yeah. It's just gonna be better. Exactly. Like, I'm I'm gonna benefit. <laughs> Everyone's gonna benefit. Yeah. Why why not do that? But I know that a lot of guitar players have a problem allowing that. It, which is interesting because I remember in my high school band when we went to the studio, the other guitar player fucked all his rhythms up and when he left I re-recorded them. So I've been on both sides. I've been on both sides. I've worked with someone who was a lot better than me who played a lot of my rhythms and I have also replaced other people's rhythms. Um many times I've done it in the studio too like as a professional. And uh and it's never bothered me when it was done to me, so it bothers me when it bothers somebody
1: else. I understand. Yeah, I mean uh, even just during the last recording of our album the way that we kind of did it is the guitar player that wrote it because you know ollie's a great guitar player he's solid there's nothing wrong with how he plays but there was one of his songs that he was recording in the studio for the last album and he really wanted me to play this one riff on it and i still don't really understand why because when i was listening back to it it sounded great to me and i ended up recording it and then he was happy but The generally the way that I always thought was the best way is the person that writes it kind of records it for the most part uh, as long as they're a good guitar player because they it's their vision do you know what I mean if they if they wrote it then generally they know how it should feel and how it should sound yeah but I think it depends
2: sometimes you want somebody else's hands on it like if you know what somebody's hands are capable of doing yeah. You just helped them understand what you were going for and then let them do their thing. Yeah. Like when I would teach my riffs to Emil for him to track, they would make them sound way cooler than I could make them sound. So even though like I understood in my head what they should be like, I would take the time to help him understand and then kind of get out of the way and let his superior skill like then color in the rest of the picture, I guess. I
1: understand. Yeah. That also works as well. I mean, if you've got a really good guitar player, that's. I mean, if you're both really good and clearly you both were in that band, then it's a case of what's best for the music.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's stuff that I definitely played too. And it's not like he couldn't do it, but there's stuff that I definitely played. And it's probably just-
1: And it's probably because of the way that you played it. To portray yes. it in that way. That's that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying that's correct. what it is. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, if you go li- and listen back to Eyal's, um course for on Creative Live, what was the name of it again? The Metal Guitar Boot Camp. Metal Boot Camp, was it? The one we did with the Monuments? Yeah, the one we did where we yeah. played Quasimodo. And, you know, we did that section where it was both me and Ollie tracking the same riff. And even though both sounded great, they were just radically different and um i think that that's the understanding that guitar players need to have if you're both at the same level it's like how do you want this riff to feel do you want it to feel this way or that way
2: or should it be loose
1: exactly or should like the guitar player that maybe isn't as good track it or
2: no no i mean like should it be one guitar player per side oh and right just be yeah
1: kind of, kind of loose
2: between the two
1: in fact, i haven't heard that done in a while you know a guitar player per side i remember hearing
2: some people do that like Kerpaloo does stuff like that. Like I've had quite a few, not quite a few, but like definitely, um, a few people on Nail the Mix who have done stuff like that. It's not like the majority, obviously, but, uh, there's still people who do that and they have their records sound great too. They have the. I
1: reasoning. think it would probably give it more of a 3D effect as well, depending on the complexity of the riffs. Because if you think about it, if one guitar player, then they're both kind of the same and you're constantly aiming for them to be kind of exactly the same. Whereas with two different guitar players, it'd have two different flavors and it kind of probably have more of a 3D effect. So it could actually be good in certain situations.
2: Yeah, but then there's a trade-off. It's not as percussive.
1: That's very true, but that's why we were saying about the style of the riffs. Yeah, if it's you know, if you're looking for that really tight percussive, sugar-oriented thing, then that's probably not a smart plan.
2: <laughs> Definitely not a smart plan. <laughs> yeah, it, it just depends on what you're what you're going for. The artistic intent is what should define how you go about it,
1: not ego. Exactly. I would wholeheartedly agree with that.
2: Yeah. When ego starts to define what direction you go in, that's that's just not good because, uh, you know, every once in a while, someone with the biggest ego will be right. <laughs> yep. Like it'll just so happen that using them for the part is the best decision and they have the biggest ego. Well, <laughs> you know, cool. <laughs> but that's not always the case. No. And you can't let times like that, like where like, someone with the biggest ego who also had the most skill won the argument, uh, that shouldn't, they shouldn't have won the argument because of their ego. They should have won their argument because of their skill. And you can't get, uh, you can't confuse the two. Like it should always be what the artistic intent is and what the best way to get there, uh, is in my opinion.
1: I'm completely in agreement with you. And I say that that philosophy actually translates to real day, real day, everyday life, you know, whether it's, whether it's you're in business with your, you know, partners, just, you know, just understanding that no one's ever against you there. Most people's mindset is just what's best for this current situation rather than trying to, you know, throw you down underneath the bus because they don't want you to play your riff.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people have bad intentions
1: or whatever,
2: but you know what? I think that's the minority. Uh, I have met a lot of people throughout my life, worked with a lot of people, obviously, you know, it would be a lie to say that all of those relationships ended up well, but the amount of people, and it, it would be a lie to also say that, with the ones that didn't end up well, that I had no part to play in that. So out of the ones that didn't end up well, I think there's like a tiny number of people who I think actually had malign intent out of all the people I've worked with, out of everyone I've met, there's like a tiny, tiny amount of people where I'm like, that's just not a good person. Yeah. Like they've just got shitty motives. They're fucked up. They do exist, but I think it's important to understand that that's not most people. No. Most people are just trying to survive. Most people are just trying to get by and not have things crash and are just looking for the best way to get through things and make things okay.
1: I would wholeheartedly agree. And I think the shitty people is in the 0.001% of the people that you'll meet where they have the malicious intent.
2: Yeah, exactly. The reason that I feel like it's important to say that is because I think a lot of people who shit talk other people online, uh like you hear like old rock stars talking about like their label or a producer or you know things like that. They a lot of the times I think that those problems don't come because anybody screwed anybody else over. I think it's because one side didn't understand the whole picture for the other side. Like sometimes a side needs to make decisions for the big picture and the other side doesn't understand what the big picture is.
1: Yeah, I hardly agree. It's all down to understanding. (laughs) Yeah, like I I think about it with like um,
2: artists who would get really, really mad at their label for like not giving them tour support or something and not funding a video, shit like that.
1: Oh, I've definitely been angry at that situation, for sure. Yeah,
2: me too. I remember uh one year we got offered a tour with Dimu Borgir and Amana Marth in Europe. And uh Roadrunner wouldn't pay for it for the tour support. <laughs> Amana Marth and Demu Borgir in Europe in two thousand seven. They had already paid for Ozfest and stuff and uh they they just weren't going to do it. It was too, it was like another 30 grand. It was just not going to happen. And I was pissed. I was like, what do you mean? No. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, like, what the fuck do you mean? No. But you know, I'm sure their perspective was there's a budget. We are, we've exceeded the budget. We already paid for OzFest, which wasn't in the budget to begin with, but we're already doing this. Like, uh, we can't just, we can't just go unlimited with these bands. They have to, you know, there's only so far we can invest in an unproven band. Exactly. Um, and that band's not proven. And yes, that would be cool. But, uh, if we were to just go, act like an infinite bank account for every (laughs) band you wouldn't be able to keep the label open
1: exactly and probably it wasn't probably just a no that you got either it's probably you were pissed from the lack of understanding of the thought process that happened before you got the word no and what would have happened is the label would have gone through had a look at album sales how much money had been recouped and then they would have made a decision based off what they'd seen yeah, exactly. Not
2: uh, it's not no fuck you,
1: <laughs> exactly. But I'm pretty sure that you yeah. probably thought that it was a no fuck you in 2007. <laughs> well, it, it was
2: like a, it was like a. How can you not see what a great thing this is? Yeah,
1: but then again, you didn't see the other side. So it's the understanding, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I would, I would have been fucking pissed too, to be honest.
2: Yeah, but I maintain to this day that that Roadrunner are a great label. We just weren't big enough for them to, to go all the way. End of story. And uh, none of them did anything shady with us whatsoever. Them not kicking in that tour support is exactly the right move. Yep. When you've got momentum and you're going hard and an opportunity comes up like that, it's like, fuck you, mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I would have, I probably would have been in the same in 2007, exact same reaction from me. 100%. Whereas now I would probably go out of my way to understand why the reason was no. Yeah. And that's why we need time.
2: <laughs> uh, a little bit of maturity. But yeah. uh, that that's why I think it's important to bring this kind of stuff up to our listeners who are in the industry or moving into the industry. And these are kinds of things that are going to come up in some way, shape or form. And it's important to try and understand where the other side is coming from. Because... uh The more of an understanding you have, the easier it'll be for you to A, get along with them, which is really important, and B, find solutions. If you understand why someone is saying no, well, maybe you can address those reasons. I mean, you can't always turn a no into a yes, but if you at least understand, maybe you can prevent that no from happening in the future by meeting whatever conditions it is that they needed to be in place for a yes.
1: In fact, it's quite interesting, I'm just uh, thinking about this while you were saying that, and the internet is kind of a perfect place to understand the skill set that's required in the fact that you can either have the reaction, which obviously in 2007 is like, what the fuck do you mean? Or you just take the time to step back, really think about the, and understand the why rather than just reacting. And obviously the internet is a perfect place to do that because you're constantly being bombarded by wanting to react by certain things. So I think that that's what it comes down to, just time. Like, you know, just understand.
2: Another thing to uh, put time into is your rhythm guitar playing at riffhard.com.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. If you if you suck at rhythm, then these the situations... Or even if you're good at rhythm. Yeah, even if you're good at rhythm, these situations might never pop up. So you need to get better at rhythm and go to riffhard.com. Talk to you next week. See you next week. Thanks
0: for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.